Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Hey, you, uh, can you hold this real quick? Uh, sure thing. What is it? Uh, well, uh, what's it look like? Well, it appears to be a, uh, desk lamp that has been attached to a Lionel train set that has been yep. attached to an iPhone charging station that has been attached to nine uh, D-cell batteries. Right. You know how hard it is to get a big battery these days? Um, I don't know. Pretty hard, I guess. Pretty hard. So uh, let me turn it on. Okay. And shine it in your face. Oh, no! Ah! Clear eyes. And scene. <laughs> scene. <laughs> That's the Tommy Knockers. Yeah, it's, everyone turns into Ben That's Stein. 80% of the scenes in this book. <laughs> which is great. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're in it now. Yep, we're in the Tommy Knockers, 1987. 1987. So this is the uh, the fifth book. Yeah, yeah. So right. uh, I, I think uh, Michael Collings in, maybe it was Michael Collings, something I read called this uh, King's Annus Mirabilis, right? His Year of Miracles. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> not. Because he published five books or something? Yeah, got, I mean, I get, all right, fine. I accept the, this this claim. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Everyone... You know, in all the newsletter stuff that we have done uh, and, and been reading, everyone does talk about it in terms of five books in a year. But it's like five books in a year of time, not in a calendar year, right? Isn't that the case? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it has to do with like publishing schedules or something. I think we've talked about this. Right. Uh, hey, did you know that uh, Stephen King was in an episode of Frasier? Uh, no, I didn't. Playing a character named Brian. <laughs> what does he do? You know, I don't know. Okay, it's just it's on it's on his Wikipedia. I was looking for a a uh, little bibliography thing, um, but uh, now I'm kind of locked into that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, so all of these big old books that we've been reading for the past half year, they all kind of came out all in a run. Mm-hmm. And this is the final one. So yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know. Oh, right, because Eyes of the Dragon actually comes out in the mass market copy from Viking in '87, which is how that counts. Right. So yeah, it Dark Tower two, uh, so the drawing of the three, Misery, Eyes of the Dragon, and Tommyknockers all in one kind of publishing year. Um, you know, in case in case people haven't been listening to the past few episodes, or in case you can't, you have. 
that's that's pretty big. That's mm-hmm. like a pretty big maneuver. Mm-hmm. IMO. Mm. Uh, if you had to rank them, Michael, let's just get let's get spicy out the gate. Okay, people like it. You got to rank these five books: Eyes of the Dragon, It, Drawing of the Three, Misery, Tommyknockers. Okay, what's the ranking? Uh, starting from bottom to top, Eyes of the Dragon. Okay. Okay. Um, Drawing of the Three. Okay. Uh, Misery, It, Number One, Tommyknockers. I think that would be my same. I I might flip out Drawing of the Three and Eyes of the Dragon, mm. which is a weird two to flip, right? Mm-hmm. I know that Misery is in fourth place. <laughs> it's not the worst, um, but you know it depends on like what part of Drawing of the Three we're we're reading. I guess the better parts of Drawing of the Three to me are better than the better parts of Eyes of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. So then, therefore, it, that must be the same order. But I agree. I think I think Tommy Narkers is like. I'm astonished. Mm-hmm. I'm Steve damn done did it again. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm truly astonished because I hated this book when I first read it. Yeah, I, I had the benefit of uh, like a warm feeling in my heart. I thought it would be good based on my memory of it and based on my enjoyment of it like a million years ago. Mm-hmm. But you hate her from the cradle to the grave. Yeah. I mean, you thought yeah. for for a long time, this was like my most hated Stephen King novel. People knew that I read a lot of Stephen King and they'd be like, oh, what's the worst one he wrote? And I would say the Tommy Knockers uh, like it just was miserable. Uh, and weirdly enough, I read it probably the same summer that I read it. And I, in fact, might have read it right after I read it. Uh, just because of how I remember that timeline working out. There was a point mm-hmm. where I was reading this on a, a ride to King's Island, which is a, an amusement park in Ohio. And I happened to know like the year that I did that. So it would have been the same summer. Um, and I'm not surprised that I didn't like it mm-hmm. on account of like, this is a totally different thing from it. This is, this is really Steve trying to write uh, an adult's novel. Yeah. And yes. Like there is like like let's just be honest here, there is no way that like little 12-year-old Michael is going to get a whole lot out of like the the ruminations on addiction and the loss of innocence of the baby boomers that is going on yeah. in this book. <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a book of inside baseball in a lot of ways, right? Like mm-hmm. that being one of them, but also like you know, like the how much it sucks to be a creative, you know, worker in the in the eighties, right? If you're not Stephen King, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it, weirdly enough, a huge amount of this book is like, what if you were Richard Bachman? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. what if you were the poetry version of Richard Bachman, or what if you were the Western novel version of Richard Bachman? Right? Right. Like, how how good could your life really get? And if you found something better, wouldn't you probably go for it? Um, you know, th- that's how this novel starts out. Yeah. You know, that's how, how both guard and, uh, Bobby are kind of positioned, right? Like successful, but not, you know, not Stephen King. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, and there's a little bit here. We've talked about this over the past 10 books or so, right? This kind of comes up occasionally this, uh, question, right? Of like, what, is Stephen King betraying his roots, you know, as a, 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 a um, uh, as a concern for him, right? And mm-hmm. we've read interviews where he's talked about that, right? But 
you know, am I still an authentic Mainer? Seems to be like a real concern yes. for Stephen King at this point, right? And have I been warped by my success in some way? And underlying all of that is like his his knowledge. He seems to be very aware that he is addicted to drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. um, and we know that by eighty seven. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we read something. I where where in. So, for example, right, so this is from The Guardian in uh, the year 2000, right, so way after this. So this is Stephen King talking about the time period that this came out. So remember, right, by the time we get to 87, by the end of 87, this is November of 87 when Tommyknockers comes out, uh, five books this year, right? Mm-hmm. And to the to the extent he's being made fun of on SNL, mm-hmm. uh, there's an SNL thing uh, like a weekend update where they cut to interviewing Stephen King and it's John Lovitz playing Stephen King, which, which is a good, <laughs> I, like, I just love John Lovitz, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, there's something in me who, you know, that late 80s, early 90s SNL cast are just like the good comedians in my mind. I know I know. Uh, in our other show, uh, Homestuck Made This World, people love F-Boy uh, Island Update. Well, let me give you a little bit of uh, a, a retrojective for just a moment, on Holy Moly, the competitive golf show. <laughs> I was going to say, are we going to get to the Holy Moly here? Yes. Yeah, we're going to talk about Holy Moly, because in season two or season three of that show, there was a, a novelty golf hole, because it's about playing like big competitive mini golf. That's the thing. It's like a little bit goofy. But there is a hole in which you uh, compete in the first half to determine if uh, a pirate will chip your shot toward the green, right? But that pirate is Long John Lovitz, played by John Lovitz. And he's just being himself. And he'll, and uh, the thing is, is if you win the kind of pre-challenge, he'll chip your thing with one eye patch on. And if you lose the challenge, he puts two eye patches on. Mm -hmm. And does it totally unable to see. (laughs) And he's making cracking jokes the whole time. I love, you know, I just love it. Anyway, sorry. But during this SNL bit uh, from 87, right, the, the, the whole gag is like, it's Stephen King doing an interview while typing. And, uh, you know, he's being weekend update interviewed, and it's just these jokes going back and forth. But, but you know, uh, I, I forget even who the host is at that point, right? Um, and uh, so the host asks, uh, hey, so Stephen, what's your next book about? And he like goes to, he gets the paper out of the typewriter and then is like, uh, it's uh, about a haunted, but you know what I mean, right? Like clearly the joke is Stephen King releases so much work that, that he's just like cranking it out and has no idea what this stuff is about and you can't keep track of it or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. Already in 87, in this year of hyper-production, which, again, we've talked about over the past several episodes, is, is uh, an outlier in the publishing industry. Um, uh, you know, after the last episode, Michael, uh, I saw another number from King uh, where King was saying uh, that he was between one and one and a half percent of all uh, fiction being sold. So even higher than we thought, uh, which is which is wild, and I'm sure it's like you know the truth is somewhere in between those all those numbers, right? But more than one percent easily, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, he becomes this national sensation. He's on the cover of Time, like we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago, all that kind of stuff. But this is King in 2000 in the Guardian, looking back on that moment. So this is from the Guardian. This is the question. Um, 
Um, when that point came, when your wife emptied all your empties and crap on the floor in 87, did you clean up straight away? And this is Stephen King's answer. Not really. At that time, I was a very successful author, and that kind of success does not lead you humbly to say, yeah, I guess you're right, I'm an asshole. It rather leads you to say, who the fuck are you to tell me to settle down? Don't you understand? I'm the king of the fucking universe, you know? So it took me about a year to get my shit together get back on track. The worst of it was 87 to 88, when I was looking for a detent. A way I could live with booze and drugs without giving them up altogether. Needless to say, I was not successful with this. Um, quite The Guardian asks, but the, the writing stayed consistent through this time. Stephen King. There were nine months when I was out of gas depressed, and despite what some people say, depression is not conducive to good writing or to bad writing. But then it came back when I gave up dope and alcohol. My immediate feeling was I've saved my life, but there will be a price because I'll have nothing that buzzes me anymore. But I enjoyed my my kids. My wife loved me, and I loved her. And eventually, the writing came back, and I discovered that the writing was enough. Stupid thing is, it probably always had been. It's impossible to read the Tommy Knockers without thinking about this. Oh yeah, I, right. Like th- this is the book. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and misery, kind of right. So, uh, just can I read the the bit from on writing that's relevant, even oh, though it's yeah, pl- please do. And we've alluded to this part from yeah. on writing several times and never kind of gone for it. But I do think at this point of the end of the eighty seven big thing, and we'll talk about what's what happens right after this, mm-hmm. right? The, what the sabbatical? But um, yeah, please. Yeah. So from on writing and what like two thousand three. This is a it's like two thousand or two thousand one. It's right around that Guardian interview because oh. they're actually referencing in that interview uh, this this uh, thing that he's talking about here. Um, oh, God. yeah. So two thousand is on writing. Um, so he uh, he says uh, by nineteen eighty five, I had a- added drug addiction to my alcohol problem. Yet I continued to function as a good many substance abusers do on a marginally competent level. Uh, I was terrified not to. He he sort of walks through some of this for a while. Um, yet the part of me that writes stories, the deep part that I knew was an alcoholic as early as 1975 when I wrote The Shining, wouldn't accept that. Silence isn't what that part is about. It began to scream for help in the only way it knew how, through my fiction and through my monsters. In late 1985 and early 1986, I wrote Misery. The title quite aptly described my state of mind, in which a writer is held prisoner and tortured by a psychotic nurse. In the spring and summer of 86, I wrote The Tommy Knockers, often working until midnight with my heart running at 130 beats a minute and cotton swabs stuck up my nose to stem the coke-induced bleeding. Tommy Knockers is a 40s-style science fiction tale in which the writer heroine discovers an alien spacecraft buried in the ground. The crew is still on board, but not dead, uh, only hibernating. These alien creatures got into your head and just started, well, Tommy knocking around in there. What you got was energy and a kind of superficial intelligence. The writer, Bobby Anderson, creates a telepathic typewriter and an atomic what? a hot water heater, among other things. What you gave up in exchange was your soul. It was the best metaphor for drugs and alcohol my tired, overstressed mind could come up with. Not long after that, my wife, finally convinced that I wasn't going to pull out of this ugly downward spiral on my own, stepped in. It couldn't have been easy. By then, I was no longer within shouting distance of my right mind, but she did it. She organized an intervention group formed of family and friends, and I was treated to a kind of this-is-your-life-in-hell. Tabby began by dumping a trash bag full of stuff from my office set on the rug. Beer cans, cigarette butts, cocaine in gram bottles, and cocaine in plastic baggies, coke spoons, 
spoons caked with snot and blood, Valium, Xanax, bottles of Robitussin cough syrup and NyQuil cold medicine, even bottles of mouthwash. A year or so before, observing the rapidity with which huge bottles of Listerine were disappearing from the bathroom, Tabby asked me if I drank the stuff. I responded with self-righteous hauteur that I most certainly did not. Nor did I. I drank the scope instead. It was tastier, had that hint of mint. And then he goes on and says, uh, you know, the uh, Tabby offered him, Tabby said I had a choice. I could uh, help get help at rehab or I could get the hell out of the house. She said that she and the kids love me. And for that very reason, none of them wanted to witness my suicide. I bargained because that's what addicts do. I was charming because that's what addicts are. In the end, I got two weeks to think about it. In retrospect, this seems to summarize all the insanity of that time. Guy is standing on top of a burning building. Helicopter arrives, hovers, drops a rope ladder. Climb up, the man leaning out of the helicopter's door shouts. Guy on top of the burning building responds, Give me two weeks to think about it. (laughs) And he says, you know, I did think about it and... uh, Weirdly enough, this is an interesting part. Uh, What finally decided me was Annie Wilkes, the psycho nurse in misery. Annie was coke, Annie was booze, and I decided I was tired of being Annie's pet writer. I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to work anymore if I quit drinking and drugging, but I decided, again, so far as I was able to decide anything in my distraught and depressed state of mind, that I would trade writing for staying married and watching the kids grew up, if it came to that. And then he explains that, you know, it didn't, right? He, he eventually got back to writing again, and he talks through um, the kind of popular idea that writers are, like, uh, uh, that alcohol and drugs are, like, conducive to creativity, which he says is, you know, not really the case, and so on. Right. So, anyway, uh, that's just kind of uh, another account of this particular time uh, that links quite specifically up with the book that we're discussing today. In fact, uh, Steve gave us uh, a version of a five sentence summary, except he did it in like seven or eight sentences. So sorry, Steve, you, d- you don't get to count. Uh, yep. Yep. You would never be able to hang on this show, Steve. Yep. You know, I, I will say, you know, this is it's so funny to me to hear that piece of King and I've read on writing, but, a, you know, a very long time ago. And it's very funny because I, I don't think that's right. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there there's a beauty of, like, yet more Stephen King printing the legend uh-huh. here. Because that's not what Tom... I, I mean, like, uh, literally, that stuff happens in Tommyknockers, right? But the the uh, historical reduction, this very writerly historical reduction of Tommyknockers down to an easy metaphor novel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or misery down to an easy metaphor novel. Obviously, those things are involved, right? I mean, literally, Paul Sheldon is addicted to drugs. Yes, <laughs> the, no, you know, Stephen King's not great at like the 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 grand metaphor. I don't think. Um, you know, much much like Andrew Hussey, Stephen King needs to make <laughs> make the metaphor clean and clear. <laughs> um, uh, you know, weirdly enough. Um, but it is funny to hear that, which I don't think I've heard those exact words probably since I read the book, because that is the way that, that you know, Misery gets read, and that's the way that Tommyknockers gets read, is like, it's a 1-1 linear read, um, uh, you know, between him and his drug addiction, and it's impossible to read this book and not think about that, partially because there's a character who's an alcoholic, right, mm-hmm. uh, who is a writer, who is struggling with uh, his inability to... Um, kind of live up to the legend, even though he's a much smaller legend than Stephen King. 
Um, but I, what I do think is quite interesting is that since we've started the show, anytime Tommyknockers comes up in terms of like when people are talking about it, tweeting us about it or in the Discord or whatever, there's kind of two camps about it, right? One is that it is a linear addiction narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a, it is what you just read, right? Like we got to take Steve or uh, the this crowd takes Stephen King's uh, words as like just straight fact, you know, biography is destiny uh, in terms of the reading strategy. And that's what we get. I don't think that's I don't think that's productive mm-hmm. uh, because this book has got way weirder shit going on than than just you know being a kind of allegorical representation of of addiction. The other one is that it's ridiculous, you know, and it's like full of goofery and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that refrigerator. We we have to, right? We got to talk about that talking Jesus, <laughs> right? Uh, and and there's some like slightly goofy stuff in it, and I because I hadn't reread it in a long time, I. Uh, I was like, all right, let's buckle up. Like, I might there might be some some goofery here. And there's really not. There's very little, I would say, um, you know, kind of silliness to it. It, it it's kind of just a straight up science fiction story with a horror element to it. Mm-hmm. I, I was really kind of surprised by like what the genre bounds are and how it plays in genre, but in the same way that science fiction um and horror often play with genre as metaphor, allegory, whatever, right? Um but I think the story itself and its complexity and its weirdness, not in a goofy way, but in like a, you know, it takes turns that you might not predict. Um I think that produces something more than the allegory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if it were just an allegory or a metaphor or whatever for uh, for addiction, and that was the only way that you read this book, I think you would be missing some of the cooler curvatures to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here. I mean, the this is a, a novel that is preoccupied with technological development. Right. Right. Like that is, you know, Stephen King is not exactly like a theorist of culture and technology, but that's clearly a thing that is uh been in his mind for a while now we can talk a little bit later about like the trajectory i see of like the ideas here developing from like 70s king to now um uh like king's gadget stories uh yeah and like the that's the thing that was maybe the most surprising to me about uh rereading it was how timely it ends up feeling Mm-hmm. Precisely because uh, this is a story about a bunch of uh, regular, everyday, you know, good main folks who are suddenly put into contact with a uh, technological hive mind that allows them to, uh, like, you know, sort of uh, concentrate their powers in ways that they were not able to before, and also seems to strip away certain basic, like, uh, uh, moral safeguards in them. Like, it's just. <laughs> It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you know, it's kind of, and it is a payoff to some story types that have gone away for a, a while in King, right? You, you know, kind of post Eyes of the Dragon, uh, what we've talked about a lot, and maybe even, I don't know, post Cycle of the Werewolf, you know, like mm-hmm. we've talked a, a few times about the Stephen King fantasy turn. Right, that mm-hmm. a lot of things have fallen out, a lot of concerns or a lot of approaches have fallen out of the novels in a kind of uh, maneuver, a, narr- a narrative voice turn toward fantasy, right? I mean, that's kind of the uh, acceleration that we talked about in the It episode from the way that Salem's Lot is written about, you know, in this kind of camera moving around mm-hmm. way, you know, the zoomed out way, to the way that Derry's written about, right? You know, think about the, you know... Uh, the paper boat, you mm-hmm. know, at the beginning of it, right? How it kind of 
you know, this horrible thing happens and it kind of whimsically moves its way through the thing out of this story and into another one, right? Like that is a that is a a movie with the light 80s glow of 35 millimeter right mm-hmm. like uh, you know uh, a, a hair light it's a, it's a, it's a, a an image with a hair light attached to it right in the 1930s cinema style mm-hmm. um you know it's got a nostalgia tinge to it all that kind of stuff for reasons right i mean 1958 it's king writing about um that context of childhood all that kind of stuff right this is a this is a book that is written with like a radium glow, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like it is, it is a, it is a book that has a totally different narrative approach and it harkens back. I'm sure we'll talk about it in just a minute, but it, it harkens back to a bunch of stories that have kind of laid low mm-hmm. in the Stephen King mythos, the King of as we talk about it. Right. Um, if there, if, if it is like kids, uh, nostalgia, and then, um, the, the the dark tower metaphysics right mm-hmm. um in in the way that people like to talk about those right the the beam ka all that kind of stuff right Gr- groups being brought together kind of mystically against the great evil whatever right mm-hmm. uh th- th- this is the the doctor doom riding a horse <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean this is the other side of the dark tower it makes so much sense to me now that he wrote this and then went and did the wastelands a few years later yes Absolutely, uh, yeah. It, this this uh, puts yeah. um like so much of like the latter Dark Tower stuff in kind of an interesting context. It absolutely does. I they, this this is the play, and it puts like books like Insomnia into a bigger context for me. That that you know sometimes we just talk about the method of the show paying off. This is a place where the method of the show pays off mm-hmm. um, because what we're seeing is not just a development of narrative narrative style or writerly style whatever right we are seeing a purposeful turn and uh kind of oscillation of genre that's happening and that that he brings other tools to something that is astonishing to me about king especially at this point five novels in a year right is his ability to write very convincingly in different genres with different entire styles Mm -hmm. misery and this book are written in radically different ways Mm mm-hmm and that I I mean I this book was written over the course of a very long time, much like it was. You know, I think five years is what this says, eighty two to eighty seven. Yeah, um, total, uh, which is pretty long for King. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, much in the same way, it was kind of written in a similar time period. And this book actually has a much longer history into the early seventies too. It's kind of a couple other failed novels. Um, you know, at least the I, some of the ideas that are in this, and so. Um, I just think it's deeply impressive. Look, I, we got to be honest. I mean, we're 30 minutes in, but in case it's not clear yet, right? This is another Cujo moment. Yeah. <laughs> Where mm-hmm. it's like, holy shit. <laughs> the, the, the guy's got it. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. Uh, if you if you're like feeling tempted right now to like drop everything and uh, read the Tommy knockers before you come back and listen to the rest of this episode. Um, I will say my big picture view is that. Uh, this went from literally the bottom of the barrel, like could get no lower, <laughs> um, not straight up to the tippy top, um, because I still have some like uh, issues with it. And those are mainly like uh, just me being Michael, right? Me being kind of a formalist, like in the back third of this book or uh, maybe the wizard's quarter. Um, Right. I, I, I think it gets a little sloppy in a way that I don't like as much, uh, like the pacing kind of hits a brick wall. But uh, overall, like I to, to put it in like a little soundbite, right? Um, I think that this is Stephen King's most uh, 
uh, sophisticated novel to date in in terms of what we've read yes. for this show. He may he may go above and beyond later, but like this is like the most sort of uh, uh, thoughtful and thematic thing that I think he's put together. Yes, it has the, you know, in, in the episodes on the Dead Zone and Christine, you know, we talked about like the kind of structural capability of King. Like those are novels where he's got all the pieces together. But then there's a kind of writerly thing that's missing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, they feel deeply structural, which is really powerful. And actually some of the same strategies of Christine are back here again. Uh-huh. Um, and, and actually the same kind of ending of the Dead Zone is here again too. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we get here. Um, but that's here. But, you know, those books are kind of missing something, you know, something ephemeral, I think. Uh, whereas Cujo might not have the kind of lockstep, you know, big narrative pieces altogether, although it does a pretty good job. But it does have that kind of whatever to it, right? This kind of effervescent quality. This book has both of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they are, are tied together in a really tight way. Um, I We're going to talk about it, obviously, when we get there. But I'm a little bit hotter on the ending, I think, than you are. Uh, or not the ending, but like the the place where there's a big swerve toward the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'd like it more than you do, but uh, but I still think it, it it's a general mistake. But it's the exact same mistake he makes in it, mm-hmm. um, which is like, what if we had uh, some more characters? Yes, <laughs> like what if we just added a couple more people here? Mm-hmm. Uh, would not be great. <laughs> it's like the here are the ancestors. No. Yeah, I mean. Ba- <laughs> Uh, well, the Dan sisters, of course. Uh, and uh, But yeah, but basically it's like, hey, there are these people that we've alluded to that have been side characters. What if we brought them into the narrative a little bit more? Mm-hmm. And that, that I think, I, I think that you could do, uh, you know, I think you could spend five hours working on the end of Tommyknockers, literally just cutting some stuff. And it would be, uh, I don't know if it's his best novel, but it would be up there. Yeah. It would be up there with The Shining. It would be up there with For Us, Cujo, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But. So let's talk about specifics after we do the five sentence summary. You want to do that? Uh, you got to do that. Well, I know. Well, I mean, uh, do would you like to proceed to that? Yes, let's 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 go ahead. Even though we've kind of summarized it twice. Well, kind of, but not maybe in direct terms. Uh, here's the five sentence summary. Sentence one: Bobby Anderson goes for a walk and stumbles over a spaceship. Sentence two, the spaceship begins to create a field of bad air that infects everyone in the town of Haven, semicolon, they all become weird telepathic aliens, Mm -hmm. period. No one knows about this, comma, and the people who do know about this are treated like they are big goofballs. Since four. A dude named Guard is there, and he is unaffected by the bad air, but just kind of keeps doing it anyway because they need to dig up the spaceship. Mm-hmm. Lessons. All hell breaks loose. <laughs> Everyone dies. Mm-hmm. Spaceship go away. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. The other thing about this. That's it. Yeah, the other thing about this book is uh, it's pretty bleak. Oh, it's so. Bo- I. I mean, I look. I. You know, it's it's unfortunate because I. Again, biography is not the totality. Biography is not destiny. But you know, the the guy was. He's in a rough spot when he's finishing this book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Like we we know that for a fact. I mean, this is being written from a um, drug related depression. And he's talked about that a couple different places, right? Um, and and especially after this, you know, after he kind of gets clean, uh, he goes into a long depression too. Um, but you can feel it. You can feel it on the page. It is not a hopeful book at all. And in fact, probably the most hopeful part of it, the last chapter, feels unearned. Mm-hmm. And it feels pat in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, this book should have had the ending of Cujo. Right. It feels like the ending of this book feels like uh, a moment where you realize how bleak the thing you wrote is. And you're like, I got to I got to give them something or otherwise people are going to. Uh, you know, finish this book, like set it aside and then lay down and never get up as they gradually decompose into cobwebs. Right. Well, because and he says, right, you know, uh, with it, I'm sure we'll dig into this in just a second. But, you know, he says in it that it is his final novel about children. Mm hmm. Right. Like he doesn't want to write any more book books about kids and he wants to move into writing books about adults, which is what misery is. You know, mm-hmm. it's an adult novel. Um, and that's mostly what Tommy Knockers is, except it has this um, sub narrative C plot. I don't know. It eventually becomes like a B plot, I guess. And eventually, I, at the very end, becomes the A plot. But it has this kind of subtended narrative about what the Brown children, Hillman Brown. Yeah. Is, is his name Brown? Uh, basically, uh, a boy who teleports his younger brother into an alternate dimension, into the jaunt. Yes. Essentially. Uh huh. And uh, and then there's this kind of thing that's going on throughout the rest of the novel of like, where's this kid that got teleported <laughs> into like the nowhere? Altair 4 is what it's called, yes. right? Which is just, you know, this kind of term. Is, is that where they are in Lost in Space? I didn't look this up. Um, I don't think it's Lost in Space. I think it's Forbidden Planet. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, like one of... I, one, like just to say this at the top, one of the one of the cool things, yeah, yeah forbidden planet. forbidden planet, yeah. One of the cool things about um this book is that the aliens uh, are constantly be- because they're telepathic, right? Because they get inside your head. Um, they they say things like you know David Brown is on Altair Four, uh, which is a fictional planet from a 1950s science fiction film, um, and the implication is that like they they like you know uh, file through your mind, right? They look for something and they find like the closest thing, and like that's just the term that they use. So like uh, all of their kind of. Uh, cosmology or metaphysics get filtered through the the townspeople's memories of 1950s science fiction films, which is uh, uh, a really neat kind of twist on what is going on in it, for example. Right. Right. Like instead of uh, Pennywise pulling on your unique fears, you know, as like a way of doing something, you know, uh, subjectively, independently. It is, uh, you know, the, the the hive mind. What is the best metaphor that we can that we have for the thing? And then they pull that mm-hmm. pull that out, um, which is great. So yeah, so this kid just gets teleported into like this storage interstellar storage space, right? This planet uh, somewhere else in the in the universe or the space, and they like it. Kind of comes up repeatedly. Can we get that kid back? And at the end of the novel, they do get him back. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, that's kind of the last heroic act of of Gardner, uh, but uh, it feels unearned in some ways, right? Like, mm-hmm. he didn't have to. Um, it feels good that he did, but it would be it would be more appropriate, I think, for this book to end in the way that Pet Cemetery does or the way that Cujo does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it would feel more appropriate, I think, for, for the death of the child to end, the, or that just, you know, the un-recuperation of the child, right? Like, uh, he's gone. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. 
I, I, it still works. I think this is a, an ending which uh, probably people might feel unhappy with. And we'll, we'll wait and talk about the ending. I, I think in spe- specifics later. But I think that it's. A, I think you could point to this and say this is a bad Stephen King ending. I wouldn't agree with that. I think it actually works. It's kind of a like a hard stop ending, but mm-hmm. I think it works better than many of his other hard stop endings do. Um, mm-hmm. Although we haven't seen too many of those yet. Yeah. No, I think it's it's like a it's a serviceable ending, is what I would say. Right. Yeah, I think so too. Well, do we do we want to start where it starts? Do we want to start at the beginning, kind of talk through what we what we got going on here? Uh, sure um, thing. So we want to talk about. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. Say like one of the one of the things that really struck me when I first read this when I was a kid, and this maybe you know partly is what set me off on a a weird relationship with the book to begin with. Uh, is that we get a protagonist fake out, which is really interesting. That's not a thing that King's done much before. Uh, right. We have like the first, I think, like 50 pages, 50 or 60 pages in my copy um, are in the perspective of the character of Bobby Anderson, uh, yeah. who is this uh, writer of Westerns who lives in a uh, small main town called Haven. And she's off walking through the woods one day and she finds this weird metal thing kind of just sticking out of the ground a little bit right she thinks it's like a tin can that's been buried um but her dog's with her and the dog has a weird reaction and when she touches it she gets this like really weird feeling uh and then she feels compelled to go back to the woods and start digging it up and she notices her dog is this uh he's a beagle i think named peter and he has a cataract Mm -hmm. um and his eyes glow green and then like the cataract like retracts a little bit and it starts like fading over the next couple of days. So she's like, oh, there's really something here. And so that's why she's sort of compelled to to dig up the uh, the thing in the earth. And then we uh, like flitter down to Boston uh, where her friend uh, Jim Gardner or guard uh, this like alcoholic washed up uh, poet uh, is. And he becomes our real protagonist. Up until the point he also stops being the protagonist because the middle of the book then jumps into kind of like the big bird's eye view. Here's everyone in the town uh, kind of maneuver that King likes to do. Um, but that's the scaffolding there. And uh, the like Bobby is a really interesting character to me because like this is the first time I think King has. Well, what I guess I guess what was really interesting to me at first when I was reading it when I was a kid, I was like, oh, like a woman's a main character in this one. <laughs> Right. Yes, uncommon. Yes, <laughs> in the Stephen King over, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also kind of a complete person. Yeah, um, complete in a way that Guard is not. Uh, you know, uh, she she's got like a complexity to her. She, th- I mean, she's a a. a um, th- I get. I guess what I'm saying is like the the maneuver here to writing the more quote unquote adult novel, right? That that King is clearly trying to work out with with Tommyknockers. Is that you? You kind of get like a psychologically complete bourgeois novel kind of character here, mm-hmm. right? In a way that we don't see super often. Maybe you know, still even now, the most successful version. I mean, even now, in terms of by the time we get to nineteen eighty seven, it still might be the case that Jack Torrance is the best drawn character mm-hmm. uh, that Stephen King has. But if only because you get four hundred pages of it, right? right? Like. You know, eventually you get kind of weighted under uh, <laughs> the fact that, you know, you just get so much of him, right? It's a fire hose. But this first 50 pages, is it's a character study, mm-hmm. um, you know, just in a basic way. And it's got a hook to it. What's the thing? You know, what is the thing in the woods? I got to go dig it up, that kind of stuff. But 
you know, it's about being a Western writer yeah. and, you know, being a working writer who publishes one book a year and kind of, you know, does piecemeal stuff the rest of the year and hangs out with the Beagle and she's getting older mm-hmm. and the things that were so important to her in the 70s in particular, I, you know, the, it's, it's what Guattari called the, the winter years, right? We're in the 80s now. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like everything is kind of frozen over. We're, Reagan doesn't show up here, uh, at least not in direct terms, but Reagan's in this book, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whatever radicalism you thought might have been possible during the 60s or the 70s, even in its kind of... Um, 1960s hangover in the in the 70s radical movements that stuff's gone and everyone's retreated into their little enclaves and you know that's why Gardner's an alcoholic i mean it's not the whole reason but that's the the narrativized reason or at least maybe his logic you know in his mind that we get he's doing it because there's nothing else right like he's wasted i I think is is the vibe there right Mm -hmm. and it's so depressing to him that the world is the way it is Mm -hmm. that he just he he drinks because that's that's part of his kind of coping mechanism and bobby anderson she she writes and she seems to have the same political problem but deals with it in a different kind of way right Mm -hmm. she's got peter she's got the farm the Frank Garrett place, right? Right. She she's um, created a little life for herself, whereas like right. Guard's defining characteristic is that he, like he had a wife and then he assaulted her, like shot her when he was drunk in a, in like a, a a when he was on a bender. Like he 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 imploded his life, um, right, and can't maintain those things, and now sort of like floats around. And Bobby just this is what I was referencing in the the misery episode where I said we have no sense of like who Paul Sheldon is as a writer and like why he is the way he is. We get so much uh, not even so much. Right. We actually get just the right amount of like history of like, you know, Bobby comes from this background with um, her family situations weird. She's got this like older sister uh, who's abusive in some vague way, but like clearly had a huge impact on her and like her getting to college was her kind of escaping that home. Um, she meets guard when she's in college. Uh, he's her like freshman comp instructor, which is weird. Uh, but right. is also, I think like, a. I think it's showing up here because like it's the sort of thing that you wouldn't have batted an eye at in uh, the 60s, 70s or 80s that right. uh, this this freshman comp instructor and his like first year student uh, eventually become close personal friends and uh, on again, off again lovers. Um, yeah, but but uh, so she she like, you know, goes to college. She decides she wants to be a writer. She's done some more artistic stuff, right? She's done poetry like Guard has. Her first book was a book of poetry. Um, but she ultimately makes the decision to write Westerns because she likes those. And uh, we get like uh, her like researching, right? She like looks into the history of the American West and <laughs> uh, comes up with these ideas. Um, so I think that's a. Uh, uh, There's like a a granularity to her situation um, that I think really defines her and kind of like what her life is that I I really appreciate. Yeah, I I agree. I I mean, she's just and it's fascinating to see her because she's got some of the markers of the Stephen King woman, right? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, the family life isn't great, Mm -hmm. right? Like, because that is if there's a defining trait to the way that Stephen King writes women, right? It's that something about the nuclear family setup has gone awry mm-hmm. with them, right? You know, and, and as we talked about in all the earlier episodes, right, there was overwhelmingly 
the relationship between daughters and mothers, mm-hmm. right? right? And then we, you know, then we get like uh, the overbearing, um, you know, uh, unapproving parents of something like Pet Cemetery, um, or you know, the the flip side of like Franny not having a mother. You know, this is earlier, but Franny not having a mother for the most part and having a, a wonderful father mm-hmm. and the severance of that. You know, she goes looking for another dad and finds Stu Redman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff happening. And Bobby Anderson has some of those pieces, right? He's got this sister, has a, an ineffective family. But where in the previous books that would have been the primary defining trait of her and, you know, her friction with that would have made her as a person. Uh, that I mean, that's still here, you know. But it is one of several elements. It's one of, like, five things about her as opposed to... The, the A thing about her with a lot of very small BCDs, mm-hmm. whatever. She, she's an adult who's lived a life. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think many of the women in King so far that we have read are not adults who have lived lives. They are essentially 18-year-old women who have just left their home, no matter what age they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or they're crones, or they're like evil, fat women. Yeah. You know, that's, I guess, the other type that we get so far. But, um, you know, there's nothing like there's a way that this could have worked like the mist, right? Mm. That uh, there, there's uh, our protag dude shows up, you know, even if we don't start with him, protag dude shows up, we find out like, oh, uh, Bobby's in trouble against all narrative logic or uh, emotional resonance, right? They like hook up all these different ways, right? Um, she is ultimately consumed by the machine and he is defiantly against it. And there's elements of that here, but this book um, kind of just cooks those things, right? It it understands that maybe that's the, the expected structure of the invasion narrative, quote unquote, that's in big quotation marks, and then just does way other stuff with Guard and Bobby. Um, let's talk about Guard's party scene first, and then let's talk yeah. about how they get together, because the the scenes in which they they meet up together in Haven, I think, do the most in the book to demonstrate very early that whatever you think is going on here is not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got to talk about the Guard party scene, because that might be the most, uh, I don't know, kingy... I mean, it's Bachman-y. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it's like a white man monologuing about the world. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, who's like aggrieved at something. Um, but also it's really, really powerful stuff. I, I don't know. Did you did you have opinions about that from the last time you read the book that changed to now, or did you just not remember it? Um, I vaguely remembered it, but I mostly remembered it uh, from when I was reading it as a kid as like, damn, this guard guy is just really unlikable, and I don't like spending time in his head. I wish I was back with Bobby. Um, I mean, the definition of an unlikable character yes. <laughs> uh, and, and why the very notion of likability is insufficient to talk about literature, uh-huh. right? Like I, there's no world in which I could ever like guard. Mm-hmm. I can empathize with guard. I can sympathize with guard. I believe a lot of things about the world that guard believes, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it's not just, you know, and there's a world in which you could be like. Well, you know, he's an alcoholic, and so, you know, we just got to give him, he's got to get a gimme on this one, right? <laughs> you know, because what can you do? And, but very purposefully, I think King is sympathetic when appropriate to guard and not sympathetic when appropriate to guard. Um, because there are some behaviors here that are like so purposeful, mm-hmm. right? Like so geared toward blowing up his life. Uh, that you're just like, well, I guess that dude did that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and there's not really a logic to it, but I think that's King thinking about his own experience too, right? And what you were talking about earlier of like, 
maybe as a child, as like a 12-year-old, I was not geared up to understand <laughs> right. what, what was being presented here. But it's a, a powerful depiction, I think. Yeah, the the thing, so uh, Gard is a poet. He's on this kind of circuit of people, like, you know, poets who are doing readings. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I am not a poet, uh, and I am not a currently, like, working in, in reading poet, so I have no idea how close to reality this is now or would have been in the 80s, but I can tell you... It's wild to think that uh, you could just like, I don't know, like attach yourself to this woman that he doesn't really like who like spearheads this initiative to get like poets to travel New England and read to people. And that could just be his like seasonal job. Right. Um, But they're doing a reading in Boston. Uh, He reads actually uh, the, the other thing you need to know about guard is that he's got a little bit of the shining. Uh, yes, it is. It, it's <laughs> unclear if it's like natural shining or if it's a result of an accident that he had when he uh, was younger. He was in a skiing accident and they put a metal plate in his head. And this is what ends up making him uh, largely immune to Tommyknocker influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, it's the, it's the dead zone. Yes. I mean, li- literally, right? He goes into a coma mm-hmm. and then he comes out of it and he's like a little bit superpowered. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's the same as. What goes on with Johnny Smith? Right. Uh, I mean, not to the same degree, but, but similar vibe. Right. So uh, he's in Boston. Uh, he, as I already said, he's he's had a wife, right? And he's like torpedoed that whole situation by shooting her. And when you say that, like, there's definitely like this is one of those points where like King is pretty clear, like this was a bad thing, like this was a horrible thing that Guard did, and. Uh, He's basically lucky that he did not kill her, right? Because otherwise his life would be truly, truly over. Well, it's such an interesting turn, too. He shoots her through the mouth, Uh right? Like from like cheek to cheek sideways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and there's this thing about her forgiving him for it or whatever. So it's is this a reference to to a writer who did this? Because there's the Burroughs thing, right? Like the William Tell, you know, Burroughs shooting his wife. Yeah. Um, and then fleeing and all that kind of stuff, right? But I, it's so specific that I wondered if it were a reference that I didn't get, maybe. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. I, I felt to my my sense of it was more like uh, gesturing at like the Burroughs thing, right? Guard is like right. uh, someone made in the image of these other types of writers. Um, and you feel that really strongly here in these uh, early scenes where he's at this poetry reading at like UMass Boston or something. Uh, and it's very much like a bourgeois, like 1980s novel. And then he goes to this uh, reception afterward and he gets drunk and he causes a scene. Uh, there's a guy there who's like an executive at a nuclear uh, power company. Um, and what, like where all of guards kind of like political uh, activism from the past has gone has been funneled into uh, his protests against nuclear power. So this sets him off. And he uh, gets progressively drunker and sort of more confrontational with people. Uh, And then, as you said, like eventually has his like white man monologue, uh, like, don't you people understand? But also he's totally shit faced. No one is really listening to him. Um, And it's clear that he's like pathetic. And I messaged you, I think, uh, shortly after I read this point. And I was like, this is like straight shot, like dead on the most literary fiction scene that I have ever read out of Stephen King, right? This feels like a novel out of, uh, or this feels like a scene out of a novel that, you know, would have uh, had an Oprah 
sticker on the front of it, right? In terms of <laughs> yeah, 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 right, like like mainstream literary fiction, right? Like uh, white academics with like uh, uh, political and personal problems all kind of simmering together that are uh, explode with interpersonal rage or uh, a mishap or something like that. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, right? I mean that in like. It feels like it. He's doing it right. There, the, there's uh, this bizarre thing where I was thinking back on like road work, which felt like his attempt to kind of write a, a, a Philip Roth novel or an Updike novel through through kind of this Vonnegut kind of lens um, and how kind of forced and like stapled together all of that felt. And here it's just like it's just another mode he can do. Yes, I, 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 there's a party scene that's very similar to this in Roadwork. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I felt that way, too. I thought it was kind of another run at it. Let me read you this. This is from an interview uh, w- uh, with uh, in the book Bare Bones, uh, edited by Tim Underwood and Chuck Miller from the 80s, which I've read from before, and I'm going to read from again during this episode. Um, this is from page 86 of that. It's an interview. I think it might be the Playboy interview. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. The, the citational apparatus of this takes a little bit longer. It's on page 86. I think there's only one edition of this book if you want to check it out. It's, uh, but it's from an interview. There was a, this is King talking. There was a pulp writer named Frank Gruber who once accepted a challenge and wrote a story that was accepted in one of these trendy literature magazines. He was hailed as the new Faulkner, but he just did it on a dare. He wrote just this one story and then went back to writing his regular crap. I had said I could do it, so I sat down and started writing a short story, and that short story was Carrie. Right? <laughs> so, like, Stephen King, all the way back to Carrie, was, uh, it, he basically, the, the little... Q&A is about another friend of his who dared him to do that. And that was the origin point for Carrie, he claims, there. But that interview that I just read from, that's 85, Hmm. right? So in in any interview that you read with King from 83, 84, 85, 86, you know, which I've read several of from this time period, this is constantly coming up. The, The kind of pressure that he receives from particularly the big newspapers around his genre work not being literary enough right Mm -hmm. they just dismiss him out of hand you know if it's not a positive review then it's a dismissal for not being you know for being a genre writer um and uh there are even people who are literary writers working in genre i saw an interview with some writer i'd never heard of who was working in 87 who published a book in 87 that was about that was like being billed as literary gothic horror and it specifically was like the, in the interview, this writer was like, people like Stephen King have abused the gothic genre, right? <laughs> and and so it's it's coming from all angles, right. right? Even other people who like the gothic and like the kind of horror work that Stephen King is doing and the things in the 19th century and early 20th century that Stephen King is playing off of, even those people are shit-talking him on those, those ways. So I say all of that to say that, like, th- this scene, you feel that, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Like hey, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I can write a writer who is kind of like losing his shit a little bit and kind of going off the deep end. He's going to dump a drink down a woman's uh, dress, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can do that. And it can feel real. And he's got a friend who's egging him on, who is so wealthy that he can never be affected by anything bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I really like about this scene, is that really this gets started um, in his kind of drinking episode here, gets started by his buddy who's independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so for Guard, like, this tour means being able to, like, you know, heat his house, to buy a cord of firewood. You know, he talks about that at one point, about trading poems for firewood, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's what his, that's the stakes of his life in doing this tour, right? 
this other dude is like a, a landed gentry. Yes. Uh, and he's the person who like kind of kicks guard down the stairs a little bit and is like, hey, let's go get shit faced uh, and starts this whole thing going. And which is another shining thing. It is another shining. Right. The the alcoholic who's kind of like more, uh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and his wealthier alcoholic friend. Right. Who who doesn't have to worry about any of this that, you know, no stakes involved. Right. Um, so I think that's great. And then he goes on a bender. I mean, he burns every bridge you can burn. Mm-hmm. I do love the the poetry reading, though. <laughs> How so? Why? Well, because like, uh, so everyone gets up and they read poems and he's like, I'm going to read an old poem because he's been getting these, as you said, shining flashes, right? Uh, in the same way that, um, uh, oh my gosh, the, the cook in the shining, uh, Halloran, the same. Halloran, uh, oh, Halloran <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that Halloran uh, gets those, uh, you know, flashes in Florida, mm-hmm. um, in, in that novel, right? He's been getting these flashes of Bobby and Bobby doing stuff and he doesn't quite know what to do about it. And so he gets up and instead of reading like a few new poems or whatever at this reading he's supposed to do, he reads a, a poem from his first book that's dedicated to Bobby Anderson, right? Mm-hmm. So like pu- pulling these threads together and this is like what page 100 or something like something, that somewhere yeah. in there. Uh, so about a quarter of the way th- or a little less than a quarter of the way through the novel. And, uh, and then so he's and then he starts reading this epic poem and he reads for like 45 minutes. And at the end, like everyone is standing, standing up and clapping and openly weeping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like the most powerful reading he's ever given in his life. And like poetry is happening. Right. It's it's truly triumphant. And then, you know, this beautiful kingism. Right. Where it's like this was the last poetry reading that guard would ever get. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what? <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> and that's great. I just loved it. Yeah, it's it's, it's fun. Oh, uh, another important guard fact, uh, not really super important, but um, he always had a tendency towards maybe more radicalism or more violence uh, in that one of the defining moments of his and Bobby's relationship when they're uh, younger and attending protests together, he gets in trouble uh, because he goes to a protest with a gun in his backpack mm-hmm. and the cops pick him up for it. And he kind of... Uh, there's a moment where he reflects on it and he like doesn't really have a memory of putting the gun in his backpack. He remembers thinking about it and then suddenly he's at the protest. The cops stop him. They check his bag and there's the gun. Right. So is the implication there you think that it was a plant? I don't know. Right. Like I, yeah, I don't know either. That's a real, that's yeah. like a legitimate question. Yeah, I'm not really. It's It's difficult to tell because of the way that other things about the way that guard is written, like we're obviously supposed to not, uh, uh, we're not supposed to make, uh, excuses for him in some cases. Right. right? So, uh, it's unclear if this is a point where we should be doing that or not, or it's like, that's the thing is, right. I don't really even know what, like does does King. Yes. Okay. It's probably a bad idea to bring a gun to a protest, but like the, the specific, uh weight of that in this instance mm-hmm. is so vague that it's unclear exactly what we're supposed to think that guard was maybe going to do or what Steve maybe wants us to think guard was going to do. Right. I mean, it's just a interesting moment of ambiguity in a, in a book that, well, in a character in a book that's really not ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, it's, this is not, it's literary in it's writing, especially around these scenes that we're just talking about. But it is not literary in its 
um, depiction of intent or depiction of responsibility, right? Yeah. Like, Guard shot his wife, and he knows he shot his wife, and he has owned up to the fact that he shot his wife, right? You know, one of the big kind of psychological wounds, I think, that Guard has across this book is um, he's talking to a police officer, right? And the police officer's right, like, you, you're, oh, you're the guy who shot his wife. Good deal. Yeah. And and guard, that just like echoes through Guard's head the whole book, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Good deal, you know mm-hmm. what I mean?" Like to him, that is beyond the pale, right? Like that is a uh, indictment of modern society that someone would say that, right? right? And he's the person who shot his wife, right? <laughs> right? Like he did it, and and he thinks that is just beyond anything because he knows that is objectively an awful thing to do, right? And he's he never recovers from it. I mean, I think that that's. That's a thing that's like ingrained in him that he can't forgive himself for. Um, And King wants us to know that. And so it's interesting having that context or having that kind of direct responsibility taken that the gun is treated so big question mark. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that's on purpose, right? Right. So guard goes on his bender. He gets a uh, he's also like getting psychic flashes that Bobby's in trouble. He wakes up on a beach in New Hampshire um, which we can talk more about later in a different segment. Um, and then uh, he gets more psychic flashes. He like he, he's actually he's going to kill himself. He's going to like he he contemplates yeah. like uh, jumping off the the dock into the ocean and just drowning. Um, and he gets like a, a psychic you know flash that Bobby is in trouble, and so he heads on up to Haven to check in with her. Uh, and that's how like these these two parts of the plot get brought together. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing too. This kind of road trip segment. Mm-hmm. It's not very many pages, but it's a lot. We get this. Uh, you got better recall on this than I do. The the Haven resident who drops him oh, off. Oh yeah, Freeman Moss. There you go. I knew you'd have it. <laughs> uh, the yeah Freeman, who is like this cool guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's just like a dude. He gives him some coffee. I think he gives him a sandwich or donuts or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, although maybe that's in the the TV movie <laughs> that we'll talk about in the bonus episode. You can listen to it right now. Tommy Knocker's bonus episode about the two part miniseries that was uh, on television. I think we have a, we'll have a lot to say about that. But uh, the uh, so but he does that and it's this brilliant character moment that at the time I was like, oh, this is really slowing the book down, but pays off in such a great way mm-hmm. um, later on in the novel that we'll that we'll talk about. But yeah, Guard and Bobby Anderson show up, and you know, as you said, we got we got earlier a protagonist fake out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby's digging in the woods. Bobby takes Peter to the vet. Bobby or uh, Peter, the dog, is clearly de aging. You know, he's getting younger, mm-hmm. and everyone's a little bit freaked out by that, but they kind of just ignore it because it's too weird to to deal with. And then we go over to Guard, and then we come back and. Um, you know, I think another kind of book or, or I don't know, uh, this book does a good job of like the, the time passed for Bobby, mm-hmm. right? Like they were on parallel tracks. So it's not like guard comes and we pull, pull up with Bobby at the exact moment or right after we left her. We're like weeks after that mm-hmm. or, or no, like a week or something like that. Right. 10 days, maybe not long. Mm-hmm. And a huge amount has changed about her. Right. Uh, she's running on him. Yeah, she she looks awful. Like she's already uh, when we leave off with her, she is just starting to dig in earnest uh, out in the woods. And when guard shows up, she's like, oh, Peter's dead. 
right? The dog has has died, right. um, which is, you know, a uh, question mark because we already know that Peter was getting younger, right? He 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 wasn't like his his age problems were not becoming exacerbated, but also there is some clearly some like weird influence with the the thing that they're digging up. So yeah, sure, maybe he did die, uh, whatever. But it's a, it's a question mark, mm-hmm. right? It's something that uh, feels really off for Guard because his memories of um, Bobby's home is always him, Bobby, and the dog sort of sitting around together and just like hanging out. And so the first time he shows up, seeing Bobby as she is like running on empty, as you say, because she's just been working nonstop trying to get this thing dug up. Um, she's like near collapse that plus the dog being gone really unsettles him uh, and event like not eventually but like in rather short order Bobby takes him out to the thing to explain like what she's found uh, not I think it's not before he wanders around the house and notices some of the other strange stuff all of the the gadgets that she's built already. Yeah so she's built uh, the water heater right mm-hmm. that's one thing. Um, it, she's like upgraded it and it's like being powered by this little thing that like isn't attached to anything, but it's glowing with green energy, right? There are all these gadgets everywhere that do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also after I, I, we didn't mention it, but a scene I really like, which is, uh, in, in the first Bobby segment where she draws a little diagram of like th- what she can see of the metal piece and then uses a compass to determine how big it might be. Mm-hmm. And it's like unbelievably large. Yes. You know, that's a very 80s cinema moment, I think. <laughs> you can visualize that, and it's deeply unfortunate that the miniseries or the, the TV movie doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, talk about taking the L. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're given that for free. But uh, but yeah, right. So So we have the sense that there's a big thing out in the woods. She's compelled to dig it up. Now it's doing all kinds of things to her in her house. Um, and really critically, I, I think what's great is that as she's kind of trickling this information out to guard, we actually get POV segments from both of them. Mm-hmm. And that's where this is where the novel went from like, hey, cool. Like, this is working out good. This is like King in some different gears, although some gears that are shared with Misery, you know, and some other novels that we've been talking about to like, oh, this is this is a different thing for King. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is this is him going back to. Um, you know, some some things like the Dead Zone and Firestarter. And I think there's a reason that the Dead Zone shows up so much in the rest of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's pretty tightly knit in here, like we'll talk about in just a second. Um, because, you know, there this scene to me is very similar to the um Johnny Smith and his uh, you know, long lost lover. I, I don't know. I her can't name. remember her name either. Uh, but, uh, you know, that scene where they meet up again and she's got the kid Uh and they're just trying to figure out what's up, you know, like, you know, this is that scene again, but it's like an alien invasion version of that. Right. Right. What is the other person thinking in this moment of meeting after massive transformation? Mm -hmm. And in the case of the dead zone, that's years of, of him being in the coma or whatever. Right. They've become different people. He's the person he was when he went to sleep. Um, and now he's woken up. What's happened here is that Bobby Anderson has become a different person basically overnight, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of what's going on here. And so it's this alien encounter. Um, I don't know. How did you feel about these different POV segments? Because I this really, for me, is like the lightning rod of the book. I mean, I think it's really cool because I think this is also when we establish that, like, there's stuff that Bobby isn't telling guard. 
Yes. Right. She out the gate. This is so good. This is why I like mm-hmm. it. Out the gate, she's lying. Right. Like the the the, the Tommy knockers, because you know, spoilers, the things in the ship are called Tommy knockers. Not for any particular reason, they just are. Um Yeah. Because a little snippet of a of a song is in Guard's head. And it, you know, it's this little moment of slippage. He's like, oh, Tommy knockers, and it's this little song he sings. And that's the, you know, like we were talking about earlier, they just grab onto whatever descriptive apparatus they can find in, in the mind. Right. And, they're, and this, this is what they've got. Right. They're like, yep, okay, that's like, that's the word in your head. We're Tommy knockers. That's what we'll be. Um, right. And uh, she is already, like, uh, keeping secrets from him. She's not telling him everything that she knows or, or could tell him. And she is, like, planning, right? She is, like, curious as to... Uh, when Guard is going to start feeling about the thing in the woods the way that she feels about it, which is, like, compelled. And she is eager for that, right? She's eager for the moment that he's... She's thinking, like, oh, when he sees it, he's going to... Like, it'll all click together because he'll know. He'll have to... He'll feel the same way that I do, that we need to get this thing dug up. Um, And it doesn't really work out like that, which is very disappointing for her. Uh, But he does end up uh, choosing to help her because... They walk through like they walk through their whole kind of like political thing. This is where the JFK comes in. The J yep. and and the Dallas police. Yep. You know, this is really funny. Uh, I, I just want to say it before you explain it. I thought this was going to be very corny. Mm hmm. And it's not. No. Like in the sense that it's a sincerely held belief. So right. anyway, you, you, you can explain it, but I, I want to say that at the beginning. I think that this could go so wrong in so many ways, and I actually was like, God damn, this is good character work. Right. <laughs> well, it's it's like a and, – and to be fair, like often when the JFK stuff shows up in King, it is pretty corny. <laughs> Um, right, right. Uh, you know, that was that was my bias. Right. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that the the like the actual situation around that is inherently corny. It can just be uh, deployed or approached in corny ways here. It's actually probably the realest we've gotten it uh, because we get kind of Bobby Anderson's political awakening when she's a kid. Uh, Kennedy is assassinated. Uh, it's, you know, traumatic for her. Like, oh, my gosh, the president's been shot. Um and she hears on the news, like, don't worry, the Dallas police are on it. And then the Dallas police take someone into custody. And then that guy gets shot. Oh, good job, the Dallas police. Uh, everything seems to just constantly fall apart. And then um, this colors and influences uh, the way that Bobby Anderson reads politics from, like, early adolescence into adulthood is just, like, the Dallas police becomes this stock phrase for both her and guard to describe uh um, the the venal, self-interested, incompetent, inefficient government, uh, not fully in the right wing mode of like uh, government bureaucracy, but just in the sense of like the government is a structure of power that is not particularly interested in uh, pursuing what is right or doing the right thing. Uh, like it will make a show of it, um, but it's never going to like close off all of the avenues. It's never going to uh really pursue justice uh people are going to make mistakes and no one will be punished uh those people will instead like continue on in their careers and uh continue to be famous or whatever and the dallas police are always going to be there behind the scenes saying they're going to take care of it and they're always going to drop the ball because uh they're not really in it to to save the game right they're in it for like entrenchment of power or like uh uh, you know exploitation or whatever so her and guard talk through 
um, the ethics of this uh, ship that they're digging up. Uh, you know, Bobby is saying, like, it's giving me these ideas, right? I, I get these ideas, uh, and uh, it just, like, it's like I just know how to put these things together. So she has, like, a typewriter that runs on its own, and she's, like, written an entire novel telepathically. Um, so she can, like, get her work done while she's still digging up uh, uh, the ship. Uh, and... Uh, guard is like maybe we should tell someone and she's like don't like if we tell anyone like the dallas police are going to be here right like you know it's it's like the it's also like the hangover of the 70s paranoia we get a brief mention of the shop here early on so we know that we are in a world where the shop exists as kind of a known entity of uh you know government uh secret uh weird shit (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh and so they they uh, decide like, no, it's better that we keep this kind of secret because like whatever whatever this thing is doing, if the government gets their hands on it, you can think here also of the jaunt and what they do with the guy who invents the teleportation technology. That is to say the they meaning the government. Um, if they get their hands on it, like they're just going to use it for war, right? The, the Dallas police in the United States are going to try to use it against the Dallas police in Russia, uh, like that's right. a, that's another thing that gets said is that, you know, every country has their version of the Dallas police. Um, and so guard, because of his kind of, uh, countercultural feelings and, and sort of, um, his, his sense that, uh, he cannot resist nuclear power, right? He's, he's protesting right. all of the people in his circles are protesting it. Uh, he has a really strong reaction to, um, uh, Chernobyl, like one of the things he says in the at the party when he's kind of going off on the the nuclear power executive is like, do you know what they did in Chernobyl? They killed the children. They had to kill the children uh, because they were all going to be, you know, just like they they had radiation poisoning or or whatever, right? This is a like this is a thing that seems to hurt Guard a lot or like to really like worry him. The idea that all of these children were killed and now the United States is just going to continue on with all these nuclear power plants. So, uh, guard finds the idea of the, uh, the, all of these gadgets that, uh, Bobby has, which run just on like batteries, right? It's literally like a little collections of like, uh, nine volt and like D cell batteries. Um, he, he sees in the, the ship, uh, a potential to like slip out of the current structures of power or whatever. And, uh, maybe they can like do something to change the world using the, the powers of the ship. Yeah. I I mean, you know, he immediately sees himself as, as stuck between a rock and a hard place. And he's like, well, I, you know, better better us than the Dallas police. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, what I love so much about that, right, is that it's it's not even that she's not telling the truth, right, or that she's like leaving things out. She is lying to him. Um, uh, you know, very directly in all of the conversation they have about the Dallas police, like with the whole context of the novel, we know by the end that this is all manufactured. Like, at at the moment where it appears that two people are on the precipice of going down something kind of deep and horrifying, with the context of the full novel, we know Bobby is the worst that she is going to get, you know, in terms of, like, villainy or in terms of Tommyknockerness, right? She she is already there. Mm-hmm. At this first moment that she's with guard and we that changes. Right. And she still has like part of her, you know, humanity, love for guard, whatever. Right. There's more transformation that goes on in her. But by this point. Right. Because, you know, there's no point in in holding it back. Right. We know that she is prepared to kill guard Mm -hmm. if he doesn't do what she wants. Mm -hmm. 
like already, right? Because this is where she has a gun on. Oh yeah, that's right. At the, at, toward the end of the segment, right? She's trying to listen to his his mind, and she can't because he has the metal plate in his head, right. which prevents you know a lot of the stuff. Uh, you know his transformation, what they keep calling a becoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the metal plate in his head prevents that. So that's one thing. And so she's going to murder him if he doesn't do it. So we know that that this is all rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, the, the most negative form of, of that term, right? It's all manipulation. Number two is we know it, by the end of the novel that she has already turned her dog, Peter, who she loves, who is the defining uh, emotional connection in her life other than guard. She has already turned him into a battery. Mm-hmm. She is siphoning his life force every chance that she can get instead of eating, essentially, mm-hmm. while Guard is gone. You know, she's kind of, she appears to be physically wasting away. And that's because she's like getting straight up life force energetics out of Peter. And, you know, the most touching and horrifying thing about this is that when she's not feeling well or when she's feeling kind of fraught throughout the rest of this novel, we get a couple scenes of her having dog hair on her, mm-hmm. right? She's going in and she is like, uh, you know, uh, hugging Peter, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, having an emotional connection with this creature who she has turned, she is literally vampirically draining him. He is hooked up to a massive power cord floating in goo, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is this, you know, uh, the way that King writes it, right? The This kind of oscillation between use, um, abuse and emotional connection, right? Uh, one way is to read it transparently, right? Like, welcome to addiction, mm-hmm. right? Like, you you do the thing you know is bad, and this is the same as Jack Torrance, right? We we know subjectively in The Shining that Jack Torrance does not want to break his child's arm, right? You know, he doesn't want to do right. it, right? And yet he, but you know, the, the way things shake out, he does do it. Um, you know, we know that he doesn't want to hurt Danny. You know, that's the whole thing of, you know, at the end of that novel, Danny run, you know, and, and then the hotel takes his face, mm-hmm. right? By erasing Jack Torrance and turning him into something else, they're able to turn him into to this monster, right? So there's this ambivalence uh, to the whole thing. But we know for a fact, no matter what, and that's why I think this novel is so powerful, like right out the gate, that this is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's, it is absolute bullshit. She is just prepping guard to go out and, you know, get on the sauce and run the fucking bulldozer, right? right? Like, that's all she needs him for. And she wants him to to transform with her because she needs him. But ultimately, you know, in the, in the, the balance of the scales, he's, he's sacrificeable. Mm-hmm. Um, if she has to do it, right. she will. Um, and th- but then you get the rest of the, <laughs> you get the rest of the town. <laughs> and this is like where the novel like blows up, right? right. Like it style. But I think it's better. I, I mean, not. I mean, rank order definitely better. But I think the way that this handles a big cast of characters is really deft. Um, hmm. I think it's really impressive. I think it's really interesting because the um, uh, the the closest parallel is probably Salem's Lot in terms of yeah. like Salem's Lot as a town and Haven are are fairly similar. Um, and we get kind of similar moves. We get sort of the, you know we get the history of uh, Haven and how it was founded and what its original name was and how that name has changed a couple of times. Uh, you know, it, it became Haven uh, specifically in the late 19th century, early 20th century, because there was this like smooth talking revival preacher who came through town and basically charmed his way into a whole bunch of women's beds and uh, left town a few weeks later with uh, a whole bunch of like, you know, illegitimate children behind. Um, 
And so he was like revealed as as just kind of this rogue and charlatan. And yet when he was there in Haven, everyone loved him so much. He was so popular. And he he was the one who said that we should rename this town Haven. I don't even remember what it was called before. But he was like, oh, this town is is like a haven. It's, you know, a spiritual haven from the rest of the world. And um and there, the movement to change the town's name starts then. Then he skips town. The whole movement is revealed as kind of a, a lie. Right. And nevertheless, the town changes uh, the name. Everyone ends up voting to change the name. Uh, and the, the kind of like omniscient third person narrator talks about uh, one particular character, but, uh, you know, suggests that we can extrapolate this to multiple people in the town uh, that it happened. Precisely because there's a kind of like bitterness or ugliness at the heart of the people here, right? The people wanted to change the name of the town uh, at the behest of the charlatan precisely because they knew they were changing the name of the town at the behest of a charlatan, right? They, they knew it was kind right. of a, a spit in the face of uh, propriety or like good uh, sense or something. And it just is wearying to this one character, this kind of POV character. We yes. Get. You know, it, it's sickening to him that that occurs. Uh, this is 1987. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of Reagan. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's impossible to, in, in the same way, too, that, and, and I didn't go and read it, but there is a chapter here that comes pretty soon after this in which a woman listens to a Jesus that's on the top of her television, mm-hmm. tell her to murder her husband, uh, and that happens a couple times throughout the novel. It's these little segments uh, that are basically like uh, the Tommyknocker process, right? This um, telepathic thing, but it's it's the ship telling people how to make gadgets. But then there's like this internal voice that gets I don't know uh, uh, placed outside their body, right? Where it's their own. It's really I mean, what's happening is like it's their true desire. Mm-hmm. You know, she wants to kill her husband because she knows something's up. She knows via tk mm-hmm. right that he's cheating on her and it gets kind of sublimated through this or or uh you know externalized through this like jesus on the top of her tv who's talking to mm-hmm. her um and that was published as its own short story in rolling stone mm-hmm. beforehand and it was the tv talking to her oh it was just the tv okay that that's what I read a little summary in one of these interview books. I didn't go read the story, but the uh one of the interview books says maybe actually it might be in Douglas Winter's Stephen King The Art of Darkness. I don't remember which of these it is. Um but somewhere in there they said it's just the TV, which happens in the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um but I actually kind of think, you know, is the, is this little shot at evangelicals, you know, in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. That it's Jesus telling you to murder your husband. Right. Um, but, but you can feel that, that thing. I mean, the, the, the Dallas police is partially Reaganism, right? It's Star Wars, mm-hmm. right? Um, as much as it is anything else, um, you know, uh, there, there's a clear line being drawn from the JFK assassination, the Dallas p- police, the, the big government, uh, uh, goofball who can't manage the thing all the way up through Reagan, the Reagan administration that is being made very clear here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe this is an appropriate time to read this quotation, Michael. This is from the same interview. And I think I've read this before on the show. But again, to do it. Question. The stand is very anti-government. Are those your personal feelings? King. Oh, I think the government stinks. I pay my taxes. In fact, I must own a missile silo somewhere in Kansas by now. Probably has my name on it. The Stephen King Memorial Missile Silo. 
I pay my taxes partially because I don't want to go to jail, but also because this country has been good to me. It has provided an umbrella of relative sanity for myself and my kids, but I believe what I wrote in the stand. It always ends in one way. It's like taking dope or booze. You take enough government and it's going to kill you. That's the end. Sooner or later, it always goes down. Hmm. That's 1985. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I don't... But, I, so, th- this, I, I think I messaged you about this. I don't... This is him talking about owning a missile silo. Mm-hmm. This is not the same interview as the other one we read about him owning a missile silo. No, because that one came up uh, in, a, in a slightly related context, but it also comes up in uh, relation to The Stand. It came up, like, right. after him talking about the scene in The Stand where they restart the Boulder power grid... And all of the, like, household appliances that were left plugged in uh, when the power went down just, like, start going again. And it starts all these fires and explosions and shit. Um, Which uh, leads right into this, uh, the the nuclear silo, I must own one because of my taxes kind of of anecdote. Uh, And I messaged you when I first started reading this. I was like, oh, you can really see, like where the seeds of the Tommyknockers come out here, right? This idea right. of, um, like, King is becoming aware. We, we saw this in Trucks, right? The short story in Night Shift uh, with the oil crisis. Um, and sort of the the horror of that story is that, like, oh, no, the trucks have become sentient, and now they are, like, forcing us to put gas in them, right? Like, the, the, right. the builder becomes the servant of the thing that they built. Um and that sort of percolates into this scene of gadget anxiety in the stand, which King can kind of extrapolate out into a general technological anxiety, right? Uh, in the same way in the mm-hmm. stand, like after civilization falls, all the nuclear missiles are still out there hanging out, waiting for Randall Flagg or the trash can man to come pick them up. Um, right. So there's this real sense of like uh, uh, we are we are building things, we are building gadgets. Uh, we maybe don't understand their full implications or their full capacities, or if we do, we ignore them. Right? We know very well what nuclear weapons do, and yet we continue to make and stockpile them. Um, and even if we were, if something were to change, if like civilization were to collapse, if most of us were to suddenly disappear one day and a lot of these like global tensions also disappeared, those things are still hanging around and can still be used and will still cause problems, right? They have lives of themselves outside of uh, our uses for them. They continue on uh, and there's not a very sunny outlook at the end of that. <laughs> Yeah, that that word that you're using, gadgets, right? That is a word that Stephen King uses constantly in the promotion and just discussion of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, you you cannot <laughs> like. I wish I had started when I started reading around this. Like a gadget counter, mm-hmm. it's constant. So this is from a different book. This is from the Stephen King Companion, edited by George Beam. I've read from it before. Um, what you and I found out is that there are very few uh, interviews about Tommyknockers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just not a lot out there, and the reason for that is probably the fact that, you know, he was talking about, uh, as we read earlier, that that thing from 2000, right? 87, 88, he's trying to figure out what's mm-hmm. up. Um, you know, he's trying to kind of slow down his, his drug and alcohol use, um, and so one would imagine a big press tour might not have been the big thing he wanted to do at the tail end of 87. Uh, but this is an interview he did with Walden Books, uh, from Walden Books News. My God. From... Yeah, I know, right? From 1987. This is the question. The Tommyknockers deals with the threat of nuclear war. 
Among other things, is that a subject that concerns you a lot? Sure, it concerns me a lot, and that's what the book tries to say, and not in any preachy way. I never wrote a book to espouse a principle or theme. I never did anything but write to entertain myself, but that but what usually happens is that halfway through a book there comes a time when you say to yourself, wait a minute, that's what I'm writing about. <laughs> <laughs> in the case of the Tommyknockers, what I was writing about were gadgets. I had to write this book to realize that all of these things, the Minuteman, the Skyhawk, the Polaris submarine, are nothing but gadgets. If we kill ourselves, that's what we're going to do it with. A lot of Disney World gadgets of the sort that kids build with chemistry sets. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's another... And again, this gets so interesting when we get into the latter half of the Dark Tower. (laughs) Right, right. Because it's the same idea coming right back, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But so, right, so, you know, that's just... These are things that you can pick up easily through the novel, but it's very interesting that Stephen King has been so clear about that at this point, right? Um, and so the novel from here kind of, you know, as we were just talking about, it balloons out, right? So now we're getting uh, the Salem's Lot style, a bunch of different characters, and it's very similar to Salem's Lot in like, we're in the lot, Mm -hmm. you know, um, we're, you know, we're in Haven. We learn about all these people and, you know, they're, they're doing things to one another. They're using their abilities. Some people can't handle like the Tommyknocker influence. Mm -hmm. Um, and what we find out over the course of the novel is it's creating, like I, we said in the summary, uh, this atmosphere, mm-hmm. right? So the boundaries of Haven are this kind of bubble. And slowly but surely, as they, as they say, become, right, things are happening to them. And it's things that look a lot like radiation poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their skin gets rougher. Their teeth are all falling out. They're bleeding randomly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, they start becoming incapable of leaving. Uh, Haven, uh, but uh, some of them can't take it. Uh, I love the little aside about the guy who made the the tectonic plate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Bobby's neighbor who uh, just goes totally nuts, right? Like, uh, becomes like part of the Tommyknocker hive mind, but like uh, most of the people who, who are being knitted up here like maintain a kind of vague individuality. Uh, and his vague individuality is like, he's totally lost it. Like he's out in the, um, fields, like tearing up all of his crops, trying to, cause he's built a thing that's going to like kill the gophers or something. And then he ends up <laughs> yes. building a machine that, uh, he, he thinks is going to drive away the gophers that are hurting his crops, but also probably would have cracked like the continental plate in half if he activated it. So one of the other people in town, because they're all like, everyone knows kind of what everyone's doing, uh, because of, you know, uh, telepathy or whatever um someone just has to like swing by his farm and disable that because they're like oh that's one that's going to go wrong <laughs> yeah and and we get this kind of note later which i you know i love the kind of uh end of this novel this is one of the few places where stephen king over explanation is very fun mm-hmm. i think uh but but at some point we're like yeah sometimes when the tommyknockers appear in places they just destroy the planet yeah <laughs> like and it just kind of happens like whatever but we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit uh but yeah there's like the, there are these gadgets that just for whatever reason like could have destroyed everything and just didn't and again you can go back to thinking about that um originating idea for the stand mm-hmm. right where that the chemicals it was wyoming or something yeah. right uh, the the train chemical spill that just kills all the cattle and just because the wind is blowing the right way it meant that the town didn't get hit you know with this chlorinated gas or whatever um, similar deal right I mean this is the same idea right. 
It, it could have blown up the planet, and it just didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the wind was blowing the right way that day. He didn't activate it immediately. Right. There's like the woman who runs the um the little like thrift store who invents. She's trying to invent a silver polisher, uh, but it actually just like molecularly disintegrates her, and it yes. it's just like. But you know, it only it was only because she was fiddling around with it. Like that was that that could have been an extremely dangerous thing, but it only got her. So, <laughs> right. And like all of these things are. They don't know how they work. Mm-hmm. Like the the fundamentally, this like what the Tommyknocker presence, right? This kind of alien force that causes the hive mind that kind of communicates with Bobby, maybe communicates with some other people. Um, that thing, it, it just shows them how to make stuff and gives them ideas, but they don't know how any of it works. It's it's a uh, the the word that gets used all the time is an improving force, mm-hmm. right? takes things in the world it doesn't know how electricity works mm-hmm. right it doesn't know how machinery operates but it does know how to build upon them to make them do different stuff mm-hmm. um, yeah you know they're disruptors that, that we they're right <laughs> creative disruption one mm-hmm. might say ad break we do it for steve but we also do it for money Woo, yeah <laughs> Uh, this is the ad break. This is where we tell you about everything we do. You can go to rangedtouch.com to learn about all of the other shows that we are up to. All of the things we make, like uh, Homestuck Made This World, Too Much Future is coming back soon, although not immediately, but but very soon. Um, and uh, Game Study Study Buddies, where we talk about game studies. You can also listen to Mages and Murder Dads, where Danny and I play through the games uh, in the Baldur's Gate lineage. There's all kinds of cool stuff you can listen to, and the only way that we find time to do all of this is because... We receive money from you, hopefully, on Patreon. And if you don't support us on Patreon, you should. For as little as $5 a month, you can get all kinds of cool stuff like uh, bonus episodes of Just King Things where we talk about film versions or adaptations of the things that we're talking about on the show. This month, we're doing the Tommyknockers. Not going to spoil anything about it, but I think it's going to be an interesting episode to listen to. You should check it out. It is live right now on patreon.com slash range touch. You can go to the description of this episode, wherever you're listening to it. And there's going to be a little link there. and It'll take you right to the Patreon. Uh, patreon.com slash range touch. There's all kinds of cool stuff there. Um, you can listen to the extra podcast where Danny and I just kind of talk about whatever every month. we got a cool little like mini documentary coming out or a mini Let's Play of something coming out over there, too. Be ready to check that out. If you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, uh, we will uh, read it, or I'll read it here on the show. Let me tell you one of them here. We got Mac54. Do it for Steve is the title. When I was in college, I had to take a classics course for my gen eds, a class in which I got to sit in an extremely comfortable auditorium chair and listen to my professor tell me wonderful stories that I would not be tested on. I have been chasing that high ever since, and this was as close as I can get. <laughs> this is like a, this is the rare double funny thing uh, 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 review. Unfortunately, my boyfriend now thinks I'm an expert on Steve, and recently asked me if I thought he would like the Institute, and I had to kindly inform him that I knew nothing of the book. But if he asked me again in eight to ten years, I would have a definite answer for him. <laughs> so that's, that's very funny. It's not going to take us that long to get to the Institute. It's only only, only going to take six years, I think. So yeah, look up on that Mac 54's boyfriend. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Got another one too. This is a very recent one. X-File Mandroid writes, uh, doing it for Steve. No one can stop Cameron from talking about Cindy Lauper. <laughs> That's true. You can't. <laughs> She's unusual. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Uh, also, Queer Fenrir wrote, uh, I'm just gonna read the subject because it's funny. Just King Thing, Just King Things is a hoo hoo hoot. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny to me. All right. Uh, and, and, you know, there are many funny, uh, uh, things. If you leave a funny little review, you leave a five star funny little review, might read it on the show. Yeah. It's very fun. Again, patreon.com slash range touch is where you can support us for the show. Throw your five dollars uh, a month in. I promise you're going to get the value out of it, and it goes toward buying things like all these zines that we talk about. I actually bought an old issue of Studies in Weird Fiction, the zine about weird fiction produced by Necronomicon Press like 20 years ago. Wow. I bought that to talk about in a future episode. I actually just spent a lot of money buying basically every interview book and every book that has an interview with Steve in it for the next like five years so we can talk about it on the show so like the money goes back into the programming um and so if you like the show think about kicking us some dollars it's like a coffee and a half a month is very reasonable i think and i think you get the value out of it michael what are we doing now uh we're going back to the show uh but uh but so that that's kind of like the big bulk of the novel i i guess the big middle point you know, and and through all this, we get we kind of go out to the city, to the town, uh, you know, to Haven, and we get some of the stuff, and then we'll come back, and it's like, yep, there's guard. They all hate him because he's not part of the hive mind. He's kind of the, the one swerve, you know, in town. Mm-hmm. He's not becoming part of them, and he, uh, and and they don't like him, but he's shit faced all the time, and he's doing the work out at the, uh, you know, out on the ship mm-hmm. that they're this big metal thing that they're taking out. And importantly, other than Bobby, really no one else can do it mm-hmm. um, because the effect, this atmospheric becoming effect is so strong. The more uh, ship that's that's unveiled, uh, it just like wears them out. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're kind of being worked through. So guard is kind of necessary for them, too. Uh, they, they need him to be able to do that. But so we were kind of zooming in and out. And, and, you know, guard is just going further and further, you know, down the garden path, as it were. Uh, but we get kind of two big, I would say, important uh, side stories that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, this like C and D plot. One is uh, Hillman Brown mm-hmm. and and his brother, uh, and and their grandfather Ev. Mm-hmm. And then there is uh, the constable, whose name I'm Ruth McCosland, and her and her guy mm-hmm. Butch Monster Dugan Butch. Yeah, <laughs> what a weird thing. So I don't know. Do, do we want to talk about either of those or or? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, we can get through the the kids pretty quick. So uh, Hillman Brown or Hilly, as he is named, um, is a lovable little scamp of a boy who's constantly causing accidents. Uh, he's just clumsy, um, but he wants to be a magician. And uh, he is sad because he is very bad at doing uh, magic tricks like he he learns them, mm-hmm. but like they always go wrong again because he's clumsy or like people see through them. Um, so he's really upset about that. Uh, and uh, his grandfather is the one who uh, spurs his interest in magic by getting him a, a set like a, a little magician's kit for his birthday or something. And his grandfather uh l- doesn't live with them but is very often over at the family's house he also notably has a steel plate in his head from uh, an injury he sustained in world war ii so he is like guard immune to uh the the strongest or like the fastest effects of the becoming at first it seems like it's a total immunity but by the end of the book like guard himself has been close to the ship for so long that he 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 starts losing teeth and he's like well my days are numbered now too so um 
But Ev, uh, that's the grandfather, he is also immune. So he knows something. He he feels like something weird is happening in Haven. Um, something something odd is going on. Uh, but Hilly uh, starts getting these ideas of how to improve his magic tricks. And he eventually builds a teleportation machine uh, that he uses to try to impress his family. But like no one cares because this is like the dead heat of the Tommy knocker spreading, right? Everyone is this is the other thing about the Tommy knockers as characters. And also about like the effects on people as they are sort of transformed, um, is that they are like, they are short tempered and irritable and just mean, right? Uh, so he tries to do his magic show and like, no one wants to be there. His parents don't want to be there. The woman who is like, who came by to sell Avon doesn't want to be there. Uh, they're not really paying attention. Um, and then he teleports his youngest brother, like, totally away. And his brother doesn't want this to happen. His, his little brother is, like, really mm -hmm. sad and scared about it. But he, like, forces his little brother to get up on the teleportation machine. Uh, and he disappears him. And everyone's like, great job, Hilly. Like, whatever. Uh, and then Hilly finds that he cannot bring David back. And he totally loses it and, uh, like, becomes basically catatonic. And they have to cart him up to the hospital in Derry, which is just up the road. Um, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, and so he's kind of removed, right? And we get some little bits of, like, the doctors who were studying him, uh, noting that, like, when they came in and did x-rays, he had, like, shadows on his brain scans uh, that, like, mm -hmm. disappear the longer he's been out of uh, Haven and they're like, what the hell is this? Like the kid should have had like, that's not how like he might've had a tumor and that's not how tumors work. Um, but then Ev ends up going up to the hospital and hanging out with him while the town searches quote unquote for David Brown uh, because they're, it turns out like they do the motions, right? They like go out and they walk through the woods and they like call for him. Um, but no, everyone knows they're not going to find him because the Tommy knocker hive mind. They're like, David Brown is gone. Yeah. Like it's, I, there's something so amazing to me about this. Segment. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Right. That the individually, right. Like as, as human beings, they know they need to look for David Brown in the sense of like the ritual of looking for David Brown is important, mm -hmm. but they know in the hive mind version, right. That, that kind of consciously, it's not like it's subconscious, right? Like consciously they know he, he's in space. Mm -hmm. He's somewhere else. He's not here. He's unfindable. And like Gardner doesn't know. Right. That, right. So so he's the only person in town legitimately looking for this child. Uh, and everyone else knows because, you know, he's severed from the hive mind and he can kind of block his thoughts from being read by like thinking about song lyrics or poetry or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, I don't know. I just like that. This like going through the motions thing because they're all going through the motions of still being like quote unquote human. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but they are something else, even at this point. Right. Uh, yeah, and this is like this is just following uh, what we talked about. Becca Paulson, the woman who uh, her husband is cheating on her, and so she kills him mm -hmm. with an electrified television, essentially, uh, and then that burns down the house mm -hmm. and kills her. So then it's like one week later, this happens. Um, like things, things, weird things are happening in Haven, and it becomes extremely important for the Havenites to uh keep everything kind of wrapped up and like to preserve the illusion of normalcy even though they know that normalcy is a thing that they are very rapidly dispensing with right
And that's kind of like that's uh, where that plot sort of goes in this section. Like uh, Ev uh, Hillman, uh, the grandfather, he's eventually like something really bad is going on in in town here. Uh, And he comes back later with a state trooper um, who's relevant to the other story we have to tell. Um, But he he tries to put up a good fight and like stop the thing that's going on. And he is ultimately unsuccessful. and and that's kind of where his thing ends up, right? He is he is uh, captured by the Havenites and put into the shed. Um, we'll talk about that right. later after we talk about Ruth McCosland. Yeah, she's the constable, and uh, she's interesting, I guess, because I guess much like Hilly Brown, right? Like she is independent and has her own thing going on, and is becoming part of the hive mind because everyone mm-hmm. is. But also doesn't want to. Right. Uh, she's interesting because, um, you know, I, I was I was waiting for the moment where uh, she had also a plate in her head or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. But no, else. she's like perfectly susceptible to it. But like her entire deal, I think, is that she is uh, she is ultimately of such strong uh, moral character that she is the only person in town who really registers what is happening and tries to resist it. And this uh, like you know, sort of she spins out in the same way that Becca Paulson can't deal with uh, the Tommyknockers like whispering in her head and giving her ideas. And that has to get sublimated onto like the little statue of Jesus on top of her TV that talks to her for Ruth. um, It's like uh, she gets turned against herself, right? It's very uh, unclear eventually what's going on with Ruth because she can hear the hive mind, she can hear the whispering of the Tommyknockers, and she doesn't want to, but she's also becoming more and more convinced that she needs to build something, uh, which involves all of these dolls. She has, like, a an office in her house. Her husband was a state trooper, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Very yeah. successful, like, well-liked. Uh, she was also well-liked in town. She, she like participates in like all the social events and like fundraisers and collects her UNICEF. Uh, she's like a, she's a fixture about town and everyone loves Ruth McCausland. Um, and that's a thing that, uh, they, they end up using against her where like once the changes start and everyone knows that Ruth McCausland is kind of resisting, uh, whenever she runs into a, a Havenite or a group of them, they'll just be like, we all love you, Ruth. Um, <laughs> right, right. And they tell her, just leave. Yeah. Right? You could just leave. We'll let you go. Mm-hmm. You can leave. And it'll be okay. And she and she refuses, right? You know, she's a Havenite. She is she is this place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and kind of his position kind of like the, you know, the the only good person in town, right? You know, go and find me a good mm-hmm. man. That kind of thing, right? Like uh, you know, not literally a man, <laughs> but uh, you know, Bible style. Uh, you know, she is the one good person. Right. Right. Um, who who is willing to kind of lay down most of her life, um, her personal happiness, whatever, to make Haven better. Uh, because, right, like at, at the outset, you could think that this is a novel that's like there's the Dallas police. I mean, this is guards uh, opinion, right? There's Haven and there's the Dallas police. Mm-hmm. There's the good old fashioned Mainers, the salt of the earth, the you know, Stu Redmond's and the mm-hmm. like. Right. Versus the big government. And the reality is that if that's your belief, what the novel, you know, argues, right, or ends up uh, kind of demonstrating is that you are a fool, <laughs> right? Like, uh, like the, you don't need the Dallas police to, like, get this stuff going on. And, and Ruth is the good haven. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She is, she is the one charitable, community-minded human being who 
refuses to be consumed by uh, the, you know, this kind of big thing while at the same time still kind of being directed by it or maybe bending it toward her will against her knowledge. Right. Weirdly enough. Right. That's sort of what ends up being interesting is that so she has she and her husband who has passed away and she kind of goes into mourning and then she comes back and she becomes the town constable and she's really good at it. She like we get we get all this history for her. Right. She like there's this guy who um uh who like abuses his daughters and she chases him out of town. Yeah. Um, and that sort of thing. So she's well liked, she's well respected. Uh, but she never, she and her husband never had kids of their own. Uh, just uh, not like because they didn't try; they wanted kids, but uh, for whatever reason, like one or both of them was infertile. Um, and sort of the supplement or like compensation for that is this uh doll collection that she has in her office at home, and the dolls start speaking to her. Um, and it's kind of like the Becca Paulson thing where it's like, uh, she's like warping the influence of the Tommyknockers onto like the things around her because she wants to deny it. Uh, and these, the dolls tell her that David Brown is on Altair for, um, but she eventually gets this compulsion to like, uh, build a thing that she doesn't quite know what it is. Uh, but it's like run through all of her dolls. She like dismembers them and like uses them as sort of like padding or something on it. Uh, and it turns out it's a bomb and she takes it to uh, Haven's town hall. And, uh, she is like compelled to like take it up into the, the belfry of the clock tower. And she blows up the town clock tower and it's like uh, blasts a whole bunch of like doll parts all over the town square. So there are these two state cops who come down from Derry to check it out. And like when they show up, how it's written is like they they just see like the arms of children everywhere. And you're like, oh, my God, how horrible. And then it turns out that they're all just like mannequins and dolls. Um, mm-hmm. Except for Ruth's right. Arm. Except for Ruth's arm, which is really there. And uh, the that's. uh it's 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 really weird because uh, the Havenites know that she's up to something. They think it's something necessary, or they're not quite sure. Right, the people who are being like taken over by the Tommyknockers or whatever, they just kind of like let her do this. Um, but it does seem like she has uh, zigzagged in some way that they didn't expect. Because then they have to come up with this whole uh, after the cops show up. They have to dispose of them <laughs> because then they right. build a like projector that projects a false uh, clock tower. So anyone coming through town won't know that something wrong happened. Um, uh, and that's kind of the end of Ruth's thing, except it also like she is positioned as like trying to deliver a message, even though she doesn't know what the message is or who she's delivering it to. And the narrative uh, makes it such that um, it's guard, right? The it, it, the narrator, the narration explicitly says like guard received the message because he's sitting on Bobby's front porch and he sees the explosion down the road in Haven. He sees like the clock, oh, right? He sees the clock yeah. tower like launch into the air and he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah and then it's like the first time he lies to bobby too Mm -hmm. right uh because she says what do he pretends he was asleep and she was like hey what you know what was that he's like oh i woke up because there was an you know i heard something Mm -hmm. but he sees the clock tower go into the air right um and so he basically realizes like oh there's you know uh, there's dissent in the ranks or something right right? what the message is is like beautifully ambivalent actually and ambiguous right Um, it's something. Well, it's uh I think it's it, it lets him know that like things are happening in town. I think he's like suspected up until that point that the effect of the ship might be spreading, but this is like confirmation that something is really going on. 
Um, and it also mm-hmm. uh, thematically parallels him and Ruth. Uh, because it's about uh, it, these these false bodies of uh, children, right? They killed the children. Right. Um, there's something there where, like, uh, Ruth constructs this tableau that Guard never sees, but that seems, like, specifically directed at him and his preoccupations. Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't even think about mm-hmm. that. But yeah, absolutely, right? And also the fact that she never has children. Right, exactly. Right? Uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, and, and he gets the sense, too, that Bobby's, like, pressuring him about this and, you know, that this is setting some stuff going. What's interesting about that is, like, she sends a message and Guard gets the message, but really it sets up the end of the novel, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in a really interesting way because this sets off a whole outside of Haven story that occurs, mm-hmm. um, which is that the state troopers come in. And they think something's going on. It's a little bit weird. And they want to report back. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're leaving Haven. And their names are like Buckles and Wendy or It's like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Jingles and something. Um, yeah, Jingles and I don't know. They, they've got, I don't know what's up with this, right? It's a They're very, like two, they're nicknames. It's the name of a chapter, yeah. but I can't remember what it is. Jingles is definitely one of them. I don't remember the other guy. But so they, they're leaving and they get like, blasted by a dude who's hanging out kind of like the war master of the tommy knockers essentially the guy this guy who's kind of a because the within the tommy knockers you realize you know within these people there are like not quite factions but personality types some of some of which are inherited but some of which seem not to mm-hmm. be um oh i guess the other thing to say about ruth mccausland's blowing up the bell tower or whatever is hey did you know evil undoes itself <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right. I mean, that she couldn't have done that without the knowledge that the Tommyknockers give. She would never be able to communicate to anyone outside of the town. Blah, blah, blah. That kind of stuff. So uh, that happens. They they disappear. There's a kind of maneuver to make it look like maybe hunters killed them, you know, because they were caught illegally hunting. Mm -hmm. But they were bazooka. That sets up this. Yes. (laughs) By green light, Uh by someone giggling. Uh, which is very funny too. Uh, but the, yeah, so eventually we pull in, in case you've forgotten about him, David Bright, <laughs> the guy that Johnny Smith told his life story to in the dead yep. zone. Uh, <sighs> and so he gets kind of brought into this and there's this whole newspaper story that's going on of people running around trying to figure out what's going on in Haven. And we kind of go back to them piece by piece throughout the rest of the narrative the whole rest of the book now starts to, as you said at the beginning, Michael, it starts to kind of uh, round robin through all these characters, mm-hmm. right? So that it's the people in Haven, and they are becoming more and more, and things are getting more and more desperate. They're looking for power. You know, they're looking for batteries. Mm-hmm. They can't leave Haven, so people are dying, coming back and forth, uh, you know, going out to these other small towns that are around and buying all their batteries and then leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're trying to make sure that no one knows what's up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all this manipulation going on, kind of Salem's Lot style of like, could it be the case that a small town could hide from the world for weeks at a time? And yeah, I mean, you know, that's kind of the argument here. So it's going to them. It's going to David Bright and it's not Strotzek, but whatever the uh, the reporter's name is who's doing. all this. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. The the comic relief character. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunate for him. What happens to him? But um uh, so it's this reporter who's outside there's ev hillman mm-hmm. and butch mccausland no, uh, or no not not mccausland butch dugan dugan uh yeah. this big boy character yeah he uh 
and they have their own plot, and then there's Guard and and Bobby, and we kind of oscillate between all mm-hmm. of them. So what happens is uh, uh, Butch Dugan or Monster Dugan, because he's a huge guy uh, per the description. He was friends with Ruth's husband before he died, and then he's got he, he's in love with Ruth. Um, and so her uh, exploding is very hard for him and really makes him take note of like whatever might be happening in Haven. Uh, and that's when Ev Hillman, uh, Hilly's grandfather, is like, yeah, there's something happening in Haven. Like, you want to go try and do something about it? And they do try. Uh, like, and, and, uh, Ev, you know, comes, he, he knows that the air is bad. So he gets, uh, like, a uh, like a breathing apparatus, right. For someone with like COPD or something like an oxygen, uh, tank, like little portable one. And they mm-hmm. try to get into, uh, the, uh, the other thing about Ev is he's also, he's an old timer. So he has like all of this knowledge of, uh, like Haven and its history, and he remembers like, oh, that woods behind uh, Bobby Anderson's house. Weird shit was always happening there, right? There are all these weird stories about the woods and about things that happened there. Uh, it was, you know, allegedly haunted. Uh, there was a, a Native American curse placed on it. Um, Bobby's uncle, who lived in that farm where Bobby lives and who left the farmhouse to her, he like went nuts uh, and had all of these wild dreams about uh, he he kept saying he was having dreams about the second coming, um, which is another Salem's Lot reference, because that was the original title of Salem's Lot. Right. Uh, And obviously there's parallels here with um, whole town becomes uh, vampires. You know, on one hand, whole town becomes aliens who are, frankly, a different type of vampire, right? They're they're energy vampires right. rather than literal blood vampires. Um, and uh, so he he's like something, and oh, he's heard uh machinery because Bobby has like rented and or built like a whole bunch of stuff to to excavate the the flying saucer. And um, so he knows something is happening in those woods and he he and uh, Monster Dugan try to get in there and do something about it. But the Havenites capture them. Um, Guard is drunk and cannot help. And uh, uh, Ev disappears. We'll find out what happened to him. He went into the shed. Uh, But they like they also take Dugan into the shed and they like mind wipe him and then like program him to go home and uh, uh, kill himself and like stage it as like uh, sorrow over Ruth's death. Right. So like, you know, wrapping up a narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they turn Ev into a battery. Yep. That's what happens when you go in the shed. Yeah. Uh, there's just a, you know, there, there are other like little stories in the town here in the middle that we can maybe touch on um, before we really start uh, wrapping up the novel. Are there any, any that like stick out to you? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think in the middle of this novel, I was, I, you know, I enjoyed all the little asides that mm-hmm. happened, but, and especially the one where they send the two kids to, to go get batteries and like one goes blind and the other dies. I think mm-hmm. I like that. I like the idea of it, that the, the novel has a good engine in that way, right? Of like the timeline accelerates. And the reason the timeline accelerates is I they just can't leave anymore. Right. And so really it becomes, instead of a, a novel about the hive mind controlling uh, the narrative, right. You know, like trying to stay hidden, trying to keep the secret, all this kind of stuff. It then kind of turns into a stalling. Mm-hmm. Thing. 
you know, like not, not will it come out, but can it, you know, that how long can we prevent Mm -hmm. it from coming Mm -hmm. out? I like that a lot. I like the little part that happens when the, uh, when the reporter goes around and starts talking to everyone and is like, Oh yeah, you know, I used to see my brother every Sunday for dinner, but he hasn't been here in four weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, he lives in Haven, you know, so he does that. There's this kind of like, you know, a paragraph per interview that you get. And he, go, you know, the reporter drives into the town and immediately starts losing teeth. Mm-hmm. Or no, he gets a nosebleed. Mm-hmm. And he drives back out and he's like, oh, he's covered in blood. And he goes into the store. Oh, this is in part three. The, the, oh, is that mm-hmm. in part three? Okay, then. Never mind. I know I know it's somewhere yeah. here. but Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I I, I, yeah, I enjoy these pieces, but I kind of like the uh, the train running at this yeah. point. Um, I just to say a few more things. Like I said, the mm-hmm. uh, it, the the comp here is Salem's Lot, uh, but it is not just mm-hmm. a rerun at Salem's Lot, which I think is interesting. Right? King seems to know he already wrote Salem's Lot. How Salem's Lot works, big picture, is like uh, we get three big chunks about the town. One is like, here's everyone in their normal mode, right? At the beginning of the story. Middle of the story is vampires are creeping around. People are starting to get scared. Some people have disappeared. Weird things are going on. Part three is, uh, here's everyone again. Everyone's vampires now. Um, and the benefit of this is that it gives you a very clear like progression of like who these people were, uh, what things were like in the middle and what they've become. Uh, and what's really interesting about the way that Tommy Knockers does this is that um, because all of this stuff is kind of jammed into the middle of the novel, you don't get as much of like a specific sense for who all of these people are. Uh, but the, the, And in a way that's effective because it means that you are never quite as in with them as you could be with people in Salem's Lot. There's always kind of something between uh, the reader and the characters in this kind of way. It feels more remote, right? For instance, um, uh, Hilly and David have parents, obviously, and I could not tell you anything about them. (laughs) Whereas I know the Salem's Lot version of this story, like the parents would have their own arc as well. uh, But their kind of story here is like... Their kid disappears and they're upset a little bit, but they're also so busy becoming Tommy knockers that they kind of don't care. <laughs> right. right. Um, so uh, uh, I just think that that's uh, kind of an interesting uh, difference to call out here uh, compared to other big town novels that came. Well, he's written one at this point. And he's going to write more, um, but that's kind of a, a differentiation here. And then, yeah, we, we get into uh, the end of it um, because by the by the end of that middle section, that's when Guard knows that something really bad is going to happen and that because uh, no, he's seeing uh, that's. Bobby has started taking other people into the shed and he realizes that there's like a um, sort of a command structure that's starting to develop. Uh, Like there are, as you said, there are like classes or sort of like tiers of Tommyknocker personalities. And there's sort of like the group of people who are in charge. And then there are people who are uh, kind of the uh, soldiers, I guess. Right. The people who are going to build mm-hmm. the weapons or like maneuver or run the weapons. And then there's just, you know, kind of everyone else, an assortment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, because and and I, you know, we get a sense at the end of the novel that not everyone, you know, because what's happening with the ship is very ambiguous up to the mm-hmm. end. Right. They want to get it open. They want to get to the hatch. Mm-hmm the hatch oh my god <laughs> but no so they want to where they want to get inside of it right but you don't really know what's going on right 
you know, in terms of that. And kind of what we find out at the end of the novel is that probably only those shed people were going to get on the ship. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, in, in, in terms of what was happening. Right? I think uh, I think maybe the implication is that everyone in town gets to go on the ship, but only the shed people are the ones who get to walk around. Everyone else probably. Well, yeah, I yeah. guess so. I think right. everyone else yeah. probably was going to get turned into batteries. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hey, oh, because that's right, because they do get, so you're, you're probably right. They probably end up on the ship as batteries, because they do get used as batteries no matter right. what. Um, but kind of in a, in a single shot, I guess. Um, but we'll talk about that as we get to the end. But yeah, so yeah, that's kind of what that thing is here. And then three is like when the shit hits the yeah, fan. Yeah, well... The shit hits the fan, but first we take a long digression to meet Bobby's sister, Anne. Yeah. Who is... Which is, I think, a part that you hate, I think is pretty good. Um, I think it's okay, uh, but it maybe should happen in a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean by different way? Is is that the best way to do this? So, okay. so yeah. So what happens is we get this like it's like, hey, remember all this other shit that's happening? Really localized to the area. Well, let's zoom way out. Bobby's father died. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, the father died. Right. And Anne, her evil sister, who's come up a few times, right? Is this kind of spectral figure who uh, you know abused Bobby? Right. Um, kind of abused her whole family, right? You know, she's domineering. Uh, this kind of thing. Uh, you know, she's, the, she is this kind of, um, animus in the background, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what if we put her in the foreground is what this section yep. is about. But so the father dies and that there's this expectation that Bobby will like show up to the funeral and do everything she's supposed to do. Right. And kind of become, you know, this is the being called home. Mm-hmm. And so, Anne makes the call, literally a phone call and. Uh, Bobby doesn't show up or, you know, like Bobby won't talk to her. The phone call like doesn't get there. I don't even think. Oh, she gets guard and he just like sort of burbles some weird nonsense because he's he's drunk and he knows that something bad is happening. This is this was like one of my favorite moments, actually, because it really puts in context who guard is, which is to say he is the character that uh, they the protagonist of a Lovecraft story meets when they go to a creepy town and he like gives them some exposition. (laughs) and then like disappears mysteriously he's like a little plot device character in a lovecraft story and here he's the protagonist (laughs) yeah yes a hundred percent he's uh old zeke yes right (laughs) (laughs) right like what if old zeke was there the whole time Mm -hmm. um but yeah he gives some ominous warnings or whatever and then he like you know hangs up and then i think she tries several more times and can't even get there um, and so she holds off the funeral, holds off the funeral, holds off the funeral, all this kind of stuff. And what is important here is not that uh, it's not just that like Bobby isn't showing up. It's that Anne is supposed to be in control here and she's not mm-hmm. because Bobby is showing independence. And so then she makes the choice. I'm going to Haven to get her mm-hmm. and she's coming back and she's going to do exactly what I want. And so what I like about this is at the conceptual level is that it is the ultimate kind of challenge to Bobby's authority, right? There's the shadow world of Bobby's kind of psychological makeup that we know about from her Angar, mm-hmm. where Anne is the ultimate, you know, kind of creature that d- she defined herself through, right? And so this gives her a confrontation with that person. Mm-hmm. It's the mechanism through which that happens that is so like 
because we 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 go out, we get this whole thing. I mean, it goes on for what fifty pages or something. Yeah. She, it's about her journey to get there. She's wrenching a car. You know what I mean? There's so much. We get this like background because she is so domineering and kind of charged that she grinds her teeth. So she's had her teeth replaced with metal teeth, which allows her to get into Haven. You know, yeah. the, all the mechanism of the novel or like the structure of the novel and its science fiction conceit means that Stephen King has to over-explain how all this is even possible. Uh, and ultimately, if you ask me like... Do I think there's a room for this thing to happen in the novel? Yes. Do I think it would just be better ultimately if you cut it rather than try to figure that out? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, I know there's a world in which some human being could make this work great in the novel. I think it's important. I think that I see where King is coming from, that you that there's this hidden demon that's a human being, and the ultimate end of Bobby Anderson as a person is the human part of her being you know, uh, dispelled in the moment that she's able to defeat the last, like, psychological thing that that's holding her up, mm-hmm. right? That, to me, like, makes mechanical or, like, logical sense. But this is not how you do it, I don't think. I think this is, I agree with you. I think you, you sent this to me in a message. But, like, this is the big misstep in the mm-hmm. novel. Um, and the kind of, like, uh, I don't know. It, it creates such a big pause uh-huh. in the action. Uh, when you're, we're like on the downslope, right? Like we're here and we're ready to see what happens and then you don't get it for a long time. But Anne shows up uh, and she makes a big stink and guards drunk as shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he's like, fuck it, I'm going to go work on the, I'm working on the <laughs> Yeah. Who cares? And then, uh, you know, we get this little horror movie moment where we find out that the becoming is a true becoming. You know, uh, Bobby is transparent. Her skin is getting rougher and transforming. Uh, You can see she's got like a glowing orb in her head or like viscous fluid that's kind of orbular where her brain's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she has a big tentacle penis where her, uh, you know, crotch is. And she kills her sister with her big tentacle penis. Yeah. Um it's just, it's going for the yeah, gross it, out. Yeah, I mean, it's like, welcome to Dance yeah. Macabre. It's going, there's a lot of Dance Macabre in this, by the way, yeah. right? This is just Village of the Yes, Damned. yes, it is. Uh, uh, the whole thing about uh, Ruth McCausland, like, building the bomb and, like, keeping it from everyone by reciting nursery rhymes in her head is uh, pulled straight out of Village of the Damned slash The Midwitch Cuckoos, uh, the Wyndham novel right. on which that is based. Um, that's how he uh, keeps his bomb secret from all the little devil children that he's going to blow up. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that's, this is, uh, and so, you know, it, it's very funny, you know, we got a comment at some point, um, I'm not quite sure where, uh, but it was like, uh, someone kind of criticizing us for talking about Dance Macabre so much because it's like, you know, pretty far back in the Stephen King oeuvre, you know, maybe his opinions have changed. Obviously, Stephen King's opinions have changed. And when we get more nonfiction, uh, just as we refer to the interviews quite a bit, when we get another nonfiction book, of which we'll get a couple from Steve, we'll we'll uh, kind of reevaluate to see where his opinions on horror have changed. But I think you've got to be closing your eyes not to see that the the theory of horror in uh, in Dance Macabre as it's pushed and presented there is just so resonant all the way up through here, 1987. You know, a full decade later, uh, more than a decade later, uh, because like it's just straight up. This is Village of the Damned. There's a whole chapter in Dance Macabre about Village of the Damned and how it works. And how that's such an animating force for him. Uh, and then we're going for the gross out here, mm-hmm. right? We got to get our movie monster in. We got to get our bit. We, we got to get some payoff for the Tommy knockers. That's not just intellectual goof arounds, right? We got to get some body horror in here. And, and boy, how do we get it? Right. And this <laughs> follows right on um, 
because Bobby is kind of like the lead Tommy knocker sort of like she's because she's the one yeah. who found the ship. It's suggested that she has like the strongest connection with the force and everyone uh, kind of looks to her for guidance. Um, and there's a bit where they're worrying about like the, the Tommy knockers that is are worrying about um, parents and children for either the Hilly Brown reason or for some other reason that I don't quite remember. But like what uh, Bobby ends up saying, and it's just before it's just before this scene. <clears throat> Um, in, in like the second middle and yeah, in that second part, um, she says something about like, after the becoming, there are going to be no mothers and fathers, right? There will be like one parent. Um, so there's like this, uh, dissolution of like, uh, gender roles that is concomitant with like the dissolution of, uh, normative bodies, uh, very much. And this is also where we get all of these kind of little, uh, weird hints of the Tommy knockers being like Soviets, uh, not in like a literal sense, but like when guard sees people going into the shed, he thinks of animal farm with the pigs moving into the house. Um, so, uh, there's this, uh, real, again, uh, going for the gross out or like the 1980s, uh, like anxiety, right? Like King is saying, like horror is a conservative genre and it's about sort of routing like the broadest possible cultural anxiety into a single figure. Um, after all of this stuff with the Tommy knockers being, uh, you know, uh, speculation or improvement, like unchecked technological progress, uh, we also fold in here, uh, like the, the communism, like the red scare kind of thing. Although I think that's actually kind of minor. I think what King is doing with the animal farm stuff, uh, is trying to, it's, it's the reason we, we know that there's Dallas police in Russia as well. Right. Because, uh, King's point seems to be that like all kind of revolution, uh, uh, all sort of attempts to like really shake the system, uh, fold back into uh, reactionary, like power entrenchment or like, uh, the revolutionaries become the, the new old guard and uh, uh put everyone under their yoke um right so uh that's kind of happening but then there's also again like the, the dissolution of the family right when when we're all tommy knockers it won't matter who's mom and who's dad and who's the kids uh and and that ties in maybe a little bit with like guard and uh, uh ruth mccausland's anxieties about not having children so all of this is to say uh Anne Anderson is so baffling precisely because she is also another Tommy knocker, right? Anne Anderson is the character where mm -hmm. Steve is saying, by the way, in case you didn't get it, the Tommy knockers are already here. <laughs> oh, right, right. They're, they're us. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, because uh, she's not um, technological, right? She doesn't like build gadgets, but she forces things to her will. Uh, the, there, there's something baffling to her as a character, just in the sense of like trying to imagine this person being real. Um, but it talks about how like when she was a child, she had already broken her parents to her will. Um, and so that's what she does. Right. And, and whereas the Tommy knockers build all of these machines to enforce themselves and use kind of their hive mind, like, and, uh, uh, breaks people with sort of the force of her personality. Um, and, mm -hmm. and just like, uh, her, uh, I, I mentioned that the Tommy knockers are also like irritable and petulant and like, so is Anne. Anne is on a hair trigger. Um, she's part of her local church, but she doesn't believe in God at all. She thinks it's all bullshit, but she knows that she can use like being a good person in the local church as kind of like an instrument of power to get people to do what she wants. Um, she's, yep. she's androgynous. Her literal, her introduction is her like, uh, making this big broad, like, 
a hostile joke about how sweaty and smelly her armpits are uh, after a, a really difficult session of like bus travel or something. Um, she's like opera. Like, if if this character were a man and it were a movie made at this time, uh, this character would be played by like Tom Arnold, right? There's kind of like a, a gross, like <laughs> right. uh, uh, there's something mannish about her. Um, she doesn't want to. She she has no romantic feelings. Apparently, we we get this like vague gesture. She she will not sleep with a man, but it's not uh, the sense that she's like a lesbian. It's just like. Uh, uh, she uses a vibrator, right? The sense is like the mm-hmm. actual sex would be too much human connection for her. She would much rather have the instrument or whatever. And there's a scene where she's like spending the night in a hotel and she uh, thinks about like everyone being in their little rooms, like little uh, insects in like their their cells in like a colony or something. Again, right? The Tommyknockers are already here, right? The Tommyknockers are like contemporary consumer society that alienates us from each other and makes us hate each other. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, that, like that. that's the whole conceit here. And so, again, right, like I think everything about Anne, like it's selling. I don't know. I'm buying what it's selling. Mm-hmm. Right. I just don't like the taste. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right, <you> know, like, <laughs> I just like, you know, it, it interrupts the thing. And one could imagine if this came earlier in the novel, it might just work better. Right. Like, what if you took this and you put it 100 pages earlier? Mm-hmm. Would it feel so bad? Probably not. Right. Uh, it really truly is, I think, a, a structure problem more than a content problem. Um, uh, but but again, you can't do that because if you did that, then guard is going to become more uh, worried earlier. And so if he becomes more worried earlier, because really and disappearing is what gets him to go in the shed. Yes. It's the final straw after a couple just, dis- you know, because Peter disappears. And oh, what's going on with that? If Hillman disappears, oh, what's going on with that? And then he sees Anne, and then he leaves, and he comes back. He goes, he sleeps in the woods that night, and he comes back, and Anne's gone. Where'd she go? Oh, I sent her home, right? Mm-hmm. And he knows. He's like, I know too much about Anne, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we also get the vibe, too, that uh, that Bobby's so good with Tommyknocker shit, because she's been prepped for Tommyknocker shit her whole life, right? She's gone through the hyperbolic time chamber of mm-hmm. Tommyknocker shit her entire life. Just right. fucking Goku and out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and she gets kind of like a win here. She gets to murder this person who tormented her whole life, right? That's cool. That's yeah. like a fun thing to do or not even murder, like turn her into a into a battery. It's it's so much more cruel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the battery shit is just, and the stuff she does to Peter, I mean, it's really, it's truly heartbreaking, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if we're talking about like big resonant king things, it's like, gauge creed dying <laughs> and and you know uh the end of cujo and maybe peter here i mean it really is uh guards realization of what the fuck happened here is just brutalizing mm-hmm. yeah so uh, like that that's what yeah. happens is Anne shows up disappears guard goes into the shed uh that initiates the end game for him and so as he and bobby ha- he and bobby have kind of their final confrontation um and then following that, uh, guard escapes that Bobby dies. We'll talk. We can talk more about it uh, as we need to. But then he runs out into the woods because they've uncovered the hatch. He and Bobby have gone into the ship by this point, uh, and they have seen what it holds, which is a whole bunch of dead Tommy knockers. Yeah, these like dead creatures. I mean, you know, monster movie stuff, right? So it's mm-hmm. like 
uh, creatures who kind of all look the same, but they have big clawed toes and things like that. And you get the sense, I mean, we're, we're basically told here, right, is like the sh- whatever the ship is, is probably the Tommyknockers, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this aura essence transforming thing, this improving force, that's the Tommyknockers. And they do it to other stuff, you know, kind of, you know, I don't get the sense that whatever's in the ship is like the originating species that, that created Tommyknocker shit. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that they are like the humans. They were just on some other planet, right? Right. Uh, like they have, they also have like kind of similar. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say like they, the, they have a similar body type in that they have like sort of the transparent skin, they're toothless mm-hmm. and everything. Um, but yeah, exactly what you're saying. There's this implication that this is just kind of a general form that the ship warps any like uh, beings around it into uh, in order to maintain itself. Yeah, so it's all ancient alien stuff. It's really similar to the Animorphs, weirdly enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, like, what were they called? The Yerk? <laughs> uh-huh. That, you know, these the slugs that go in people's ears and, and control them, right? It's the same vibe, right? Like, the Tommyknockers are, like, this thing that that does stuff. And we get, you know, this long... I forget who... Oh, it's maybe Bobby talking to guard, right? And explaining, like, all the different parts of Tommyknocker tech that she understands and the history of the Tommyknockers. It's mm-hmm. an over-explanation in the Kingian mode, but I actually really like it. I like when Stephen King just, like, talks about fucking science fiction shit that he's invented, right? Like, it's cool. Uh, but you're right. He gets in the... It, they go in the ship. They learn all this kind of stuff, but really it's not... The revelation here is not like, oh, here are the Tommyknockers, and here's how they work, and here's everything they do. It's really like, oh, here's the ship. I guess we got to go finish the novel, you know, like right. it's it's uh, it, that that's not the end of stuff. The end of stuff is that Bobby dies and that the rest of the Tommyknockers in Haven all make their way to to kill guard, essentially, so that they can kind of continue the becoming and finish up and then get in the ship, dominate the world. It's unclear. The outcome is not stated. And that's good, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it it really is. Like there's something uh, at, later on guard calls the ship like the the oldest haunted house in the universe or something. Yeah. Um which is a really great image because yeah, they they find like the corpses of the Tommyknockers they in like kind of a control room and there's just a handful of them and it's clear that whenever the ship crashed, they were fighting each other. Like they they died because they were killing each other. They like blew up at one another. Which, of course, is a thing that the Tommyknockers do. They're all irritable. In that middle part, one of the things that happens is we see a lot of, like, small-town Maine folk uh, working out their petty grudges on each other with, like, wild teleportation technology and things like that. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so, like, these Tommyknockers, like, the pilots killed each other, and then they, like, go further on, and then they find, like, what is apparently some sort of, like, power room where it's just all the other Tommyknockers stuck in, like, these cells uh, with, like, cords in them where they were being used as, like, living batteries. Uh, and right. Guard explicitly thinks of it as, like, the galley of a slave ship. Yeah. So um, it seems to be that uh, this is what the, the Tommyknockers do, right? Is they, or the, the ship, like, collects uh, 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 people, like, warps them, morphs them, uh, and then zips off using them as a power source until it runs out and has to do the whole thing again. Yeah, and, you know, the... the it's partially the interesting thing here, and one of the reasons we haven't gotten super deep in it is, weirdly enough, Tommyknockers now is at a point of, like, the Kingian thing, right, where we get the, like, you know, whatever, indigenous American cursed forest, right, that's in uh, Pet Cemetery, 
But where that is like, you get a hundred pages about that here, right? It's just like uh, passed through, right? It's like infrastructure in the background, right? And then like the racial metaphor of like the slave ship, right? Mm-hmm. That is, I think in previous King novels, we would have gotten a lot about that, but it's just like, oh, one tossed off line and gone from there. I mm-hmm. really felt in this novel, uh, because you know, that that's something that we talked about last time, that a lot of the writing and a lot of discussion and a lot of things that are happening around King in like 84, 85, 86, um, he's getting a lot of like conversation going about race. Uh, you know, he, he has to defend or chooses to defend or, or brings up, um, you know, the question of race and it in most of the interviews I read, right. You know, when I was reading in that, uh, uh, in that episode from those interviews, that's not me like cherry picking or just finding interviews where it came up. It's regular. Uh, and it shows up even in his time magazine feature, uh, that happens with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what's fascinating to me. And so he's really defensive about that. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but he is willing to say, Hey, the way I engage with this is okay and good. And I, I stand by it. You know, he doesn't dodge the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's fascinating to me is that those kind of racialized metaphors or racialized explanatory apparatuses that show up all the way back in Carrie, right? Remember that Carrie gets figured as like a Native American, yeah. uh, you know, in in her rage moment. Uh, that that stuff is like in the background here. It's, you know, not really thought about. Everyone in Haven is white, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if, if they're not, it's not spoken about. Um, and so it's fascinating to me that it had such a, you know, a uh, key component of talking about Mike Hanlon and race and King seemed really interested in digging into that. And then here we are in the Tommyknockers, right? And uh, it's all gone. And then we get the drawing of the three, obviously, too, where that's really yeah. in there. So it, I get the sense that there was a, uh, you know, even though he had started working on the Tommyknockers way before this, you know, all the way back in 82, I do think uh, that kind of conversation or blowback or whatever that's happening with that. Um, I think soured King about writing about race explicitly for a while. I mean, I'm looking at the bibliography of the next books that come up, and I don't think that race is a a major component of any of the books over the next four or five years. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, just a thing to note, right? Yeah. Uh, you know that that things that seem to be very important to him in the early '80s, mid '80s, that kind of falls out a little bit. You know, and the, even the Running Man has a. You know, right. a pretty extensive race component, even if I don't think that's handled exactly super well. Uh, it's still there. But, you know, for someone who spends <laughs> a lot of 1986 talking about how much he's interested in writing about race and not watering down the American, you know, reality, we get five years of kind of not talking about the American reality. And I wonder what's up with that. Well, it's because the American reality is being crushed to death by a flying Coke machine. People like to talk about this. About this big Coke machine. It is not nearly as egregious, both as I remembered and as people like to talk about it as. Same. Yeah, it just, it's like, okay, yeah, all right, there's a big floating Coke machine, it kills people. I think one of the interesting things about uh, comparing my reactions to this now to my reactions when I was 12 is truly like how much my aesthetic sensibilities have developed. Um, In the sense that, like, I remember reading this when I was 12 and being like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this is where we are. Uh, uh, also, because of, uh, you know, predilections or whatever, I'm, I was like so much of like a formalist as a kid that uh, the switch out with the protagonists and then moving into the town in the middle of the book uh, and then moving back to uh, guard and everything in the third part, like just really disoriented me and made me angry. I think I talked a little bit about this in... Um, 
the Christine episode where I had a similar reaction to like the way that novel changes literally like the, the point of view <laughs> um, and how right. that irritated me. Um, but I, I'm beyond that now. And uh, at the time, uh, I remember just thinking like, this is so goofy. This is so stupid. Here's Stephen King doing his Stephen King thing. Like, here's a haunted Coke machine, blah, 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 blah. Um, and what I really appreciate about all of the gadget stuff in this book now, from the Coke machine to like the the evil like um, vacuum cleaner that's like zipping around with like a buzzsaw on it. Yeah. Uh, yes. Is like with an automatic knife or something like a like a carving knife. Yes. Uh, what I love about it is precisely just like, the, the very conceit of what the Tommy knockers do, which is like all of these people are suddenly filled with these impossible ideas in their heads and they just build them uh, with the shit that they got lying around. Right. <laughs> um, there's yeah, something yeah. really cool about that of like uh, the the evil like force uh, that lives underneath the earth. Right. The evil alien force is like uh, uh making like mind controlling people into building alien technology with uh the technology that is currently available yeah uh yeah i you know they're just willing to do the thing and like it is scary to get hit with a to get hit by a 400 pound machine yeah although i do love that in the 80s stephen king wrote two murderous coke machines yeah I mean, that seems to be something that he was fixated on for a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, 80 foot maximum overdrive has got the one that kills that whole team of children. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, I don't find it agree. You know, and it's it's tragic what happens, right? Like (laughs) that that reporter, he does all this work and he gets to Haven and his car stops and he's like looking around. He's like, what is that? Is that a Coke machine? And then it just hits him at 70 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, it's very much a, uh, uh, a, a, what do you call it? A, uh, like a trucks style scene, right? Yes. A maximum overdrive style scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I like it. I, I, I don't find it strange at all. I do think if you just pick this book up at random, I, I think there's a benefit to us. You know, this is another place where the method both pays off and then like creates a particular kind of reading, right? Where it's like, I can see all the ways that Tommy Knockers is stapling and, and weaving together a lot of things that we've been talking about, um, in, including like the Coke machine, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, the Tommy Knockers get together and they hive mind together stuff out of like B movies, you know, mm-hmm. like murder machines. We get like a, the other big machine that's actually really important here. That's like this, I don't know, like umbrella that shoots green lasers everywhere and (laughs) it just kills everything in a big 360 radius. Right. Like that's some movie shit. Right. Like that has no practical use or purpose. Right. Uh, But it it works, you know, within the conceit of the of the novel. Um, And I like the idea that the movie moves here at the end away from something. You mean the the book? You called it a movie? Oh, I'm sorry, the book. Yeah, yeah, sorry, the book. I like that it moves in a kind of cinematic direction. That's what what I was working for, right? Mm -hmm. That it it moves away from the intellectual horror of uh, a Wyndham novel or uh, Body Snatchers, you know, that kind of thing. Or even like Cronenberg's Mm -hmm. work, right? Of like... What what if the machines, right? Like, uh-huh. what did they do to us? It's very similar kind of thing. And and actually, what I was thinking about while while, um, 
reading this was like that the trajectory of King and the trajectory of Cronenberg are very weirdly similar in the eighties and the nineties. They go from technology and the kind of effect of technology on subjectivity to like deeply intellectual inside the brain novels, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, not novels in the case of Cronenberg, but films, right? This kind of like the move from what does technology do to us to like, what is a person Mm -hmm. Uh, that kind of happens with King too, which is fascinating. But uh, it goes from that to like, hey, we're going to get a big knockout ending here, right? There's a fucking forest fire. The police are showing up, right? Like, yeah. here we go. Like, it, like it's a movie now. We're going to see a spaceship fly. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> um, and so I like that. I like that we come to the end. And it's kind of because of David Bright, right? Like, the reporter says, hey, if I don't call you in two hours, you know, call the Dallas police, right? Like, call mm-hmm. the Stadies, let everyone know what's up. David Bright does that. He gets a vibe. He's like, oh, my God, I think my dude's dead. You know, I think my friend is dead. So he calls up the Stadies, and at the same time that he calls the Stadies, the Stadies get a report that's like, this is some great king, too, right? Like, they're getting a report at the same time that there's a forest fire in mm-hmm. Haven. Mm-hmm. And, they, and th- this is all happening at the beginning. You're like, oh, my gosh, what is up? And then we actually... Uh, because the the novel, for the most part, when you cut back and forth in this novel, it's all in time. So, like, if we got a scene with Ev Hillman and we went back to guard, like, the Ev Hillman scene had taken place before that, right? We just weren't there for whatever guard was doing. This is the section three is, I think, the first part in the novel where we get a whole segment of time and then we cut to another character and, and learn what they were doing parallel to that as opposed to after that or before it. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really cool, too. That's an interesting stylistic change that happens toward the end of the novel um, that gives it this kind of progressive move of like, oh, my gosh, what happened? Oh, my gosh, let's find out what happened over here. And it's basically guard burned everything down. <laughs> right. We know that there's a forest fire. I think we even see like the the ship taking off into the air um, yes, before so. we know that guard and Bobby had a final confrontation where he basically gets her to come clean about the Tommy knockers. And she does kind of the over explaining thing that you mentioned of uh, she and you get the sense that it's not even really quite her speaking anymore. Right. It's the yeah. the, the spirit of the Tommy knockers themselves because she's like effervescent and giddy to be able to tell him all this stuff of like. You know, sometimes it, we land on planets and everything like the planet's just gone by the time we're we're done with it. Right. It gets destroyed. Uh, um, you do you realize how many uh, like there, there's that really great uh, thing where she is explaining the teleportation technology? Yeah. Um, God, that's so good. Because he wants to know he, he wants to find the boy. Right. He's decided he's going to try to find David Brown. Um and uh, I think it's he's already gone into the shed at this point. He's found uh, uh, Ev, mm-hmm. uh, Peter and uh, Anne all turned into human batteries. And Ev comes to just enough to tell him, like, you know, find my grandson. And so he kind of makes that his his little quest. Um, and so he's asking about the teleportation stuff. And Bobby explains, like, do you like we found like all of these channels right in the universe? Uh, do you realize how many of them are just like useless like there's nothing there like you you if you teleported you would just end up in the middle of a rock somewhere uh so there like there's all this stuff in the universe and an infinitesimal amount of it is in any way useful or interesting and they found a little dimension or planet or whatever that they use basically as cold storage and that's where david brown is um and uh the there's like a standoff between them a guard tries to shoot her he misses 
uh, like Guard is put through like physical misery throughout this book. He's constantly drunk and ho- hung over, has like headaches. And here at the end, he like gets a bullet through his ankle. Uh, I think he's like been partially burned or something. He's getting nosebleeds. It's just, oh, yeah, misery. She, yeah, she has the, uh, she because she explains it because she has the same, basically the same device um, or like another device that teleports people to like other places in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. She tells a really cool story there at the same time where she was like, yeah, one one dimension just opens up to a planet that's like Jupiter. You know, it has the atmosphere of Jupiter and the gravity is such that some one time a Tommyknocker opened it. Uh, you know, on some other planet at some other time, you know, you get a sense that the, the vastness of the Tommyknockers is like huge here, right? They've been doing mm-hmm. this for eternity and will continue to do this for eternity. Um, and so, you know, the, um, you know, so they opened up this rift to this Jupiter place and it just killed everybody. And he's like, oh my gosh, everyone died. She's like, well, no, like, you know, there are a few fa- thousand people still living on the, the Arctic poles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, that, like, that's such a good science fiction paragraph, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but she's like, I'm going to send you to the static in between the channels, dude. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not sending you to Altair 4. And basically, I mean, I guess I said earlier that they sent David Brown to the jaunt. Not really. They, they're, this, this gun is going to send guard to the jaunt right you know like this nowhere place in between the signals right the, actually the um, distinct thing for david brown's situation is that no like uh time is passing but it's passing very slowly right he's he's gone to this yeah. other dimension but it's been like just a few seconds uh of his personal time whereas the jaunt is like infinity forever at all at once right yeah kind of a an inverse jaunt i guess right but uh, but yeah, so she's like, I'm going to do that to you. And uh, she's making him uh, basically eat Valium. She's making him kill himself. Oh, that's uh, right. You know, yeah. She's making him drink and eat Valium at the same time. And she'll tell him whatever he wants to know. Right. You know, we'll give you the info dump, but you got to do it. And he's buying time. And he's got this like ancient 45 that he got from Ev Hillman. And I, yeah, what I really love about that is, yeah, he fires. It doesn't go off. She shoots, but he pushes the table that's in between them, and it, like, blows a hole through the roof of the ceiling, or the roof of the kitchen, right? Yeah. And then he keeps kind of, like, going back and forth, and he he, he uh, drops the gun, and when he drops the gun, it blows through his ankle. He, like, shoots yeah. through his foot, basically. That's a wonderful, like, it, it dramatizes the ending and actually makes the ending feel a little slow. I don't like that. I don't think it would have improved or or hurt anything, or I don't think that it would have done anything negative to the ending for that not to have happened. I don't think any of this pain stuff is, like, particularly compelling. Uh, but I do like the, like, fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. ah, ah, and that's, I guess, the point, right? It does work in that way. But And then he shoots her, boom, right in the head, and he gets this, uh, uh, like, dead static, right? As, like, mm-hmm. psychic blowback, just mm-hmm. nothingness. I like that too. I like the idea that you know, uh, there there's another world in which you kill Bobby Anderson and like the real Tommy Knocker emerges, right? That's uh-huh. the other way to go here. That's the That's video game version, right? <laughs> like right, second right, form right. of the boss battle. A hundred percent. And you can imagine that happening, and you could imagine that happening in a Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Uh and yet it doesn't, thankfully. Uh, you know, there's there's no no big bad, you know, it's it's guard having to kill his friend. Mm-hmm. And lover and part, you know what I mean? I actually like the ambiguity of their relationship. It, it oscillates back and forth between a lot of different things. Yeah, they've they've uh, been different yeah. things to each other over the course of their relationship. And that's really interesting because we don't really that's not a thing we've seen in King before. 
No. I mean, it's not a thing we're going to see much coming after this either, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but but that's fascinating to me. And so then he goes out, and the, I guess the cool thing here about the end, before he gets in the ship, because there's really not, you know, everyone in Haven's coming. We get some Salem's Lottie kind of stuff of people dying. Uh, it's like, or actually, it's kind of... Uh, Everything that's happening around this is very the stand. You know, the, mm-hmm. it's it's no great loss through another perspective, right? Like the National Guardsmen are coming, and because the wind has shifted, the Haven atmosphere is blowing somewhere else, and so they're just dying on mass, right? Right. Um, and uh, so guard uh, goes in the shed, and then I do like that the sister. <laughs> controls the like mass murder machine <laughs> right like the we finally find the the justification for ann anderson being such a miserable hateful human being and it's that so she can borrow the lightning spewing doomsday device that just like murders <laughs> half of haven it's fucking rad man it's so cool like it, it's you know just science fiction shit right it's just like Hey, what if the ultimate evil got the ultimate gun? <laughs> right. Well, it, it's <laughs> what like if Megatron turned into a gun and just started blasting everybody. It's, well, it's rad. I mean, that's what's great, right? Is that like uh, it turns out all of the Tommy knockers are insufficient to the rage of Ann Anderson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because she's she's powered by like the awfulness of humanity, right? Like, right. The worst human being is somehow worse than the the intergalactic murder creatures, right? Um, who just warp everything to their end? Because her, you know, they're they want to change things. She just wants to kill stuff and then bend it to their will. You know, maybe maybe the average American evil person just might be worse <laughs> than aliens. I, that's kind of what's <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Uh, and and it works out, right? And she buys them time and she sets the forest on fire, and that's what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Before also we get into oh, oh. yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say he he also uses Bobby's like weird little computer setup that she's got in the shed to uh, locate David Brown and move him out of Altair Four, uh, but he doesn't know where to move him. Uh, but then he gets an idea and he does it, and we're gonna find out about that at the end because we don't know about that for the next like I don't know fifty pages or something. Right. Parallel to this, we're also getting some of the standisms, right? Uh, but we're getting the government. Mm-hmm. Like what's the what are the Dallas police up to? And this is some of the best stuff in the novel too, right? We we get the main senator. No, it's the the DA or something or the the general. I don't. Who is it? You know uh, what I'm talking about the the guy they go get from vacation. Oh yeah, I can't remember. I think maybe he is a senator. I I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I, he yeah, don't, he gets into yeah. the uh, he's. I think he's like state level politician or something because they get him into the helicopter and he asks the guy. No, I guess he yeah. is a general because he asks the guy in the helicopter, like, what's your affiliation or whatever? And all the pilot says is uh, the shop. And that's when the guy's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, I even like oh, I actually want to read it. I It's that good. I, I want to okay. do it. Oh, you know what? Uh, can you can you talk about Freeman Moss showing back up again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually like that a lot. But you can say that while I'm looking Uh, So a thing that we sort of glossed over is that uh, Bobby gets um, uh, pretty sick at one point Uh, later on. She she nearly dies and she disappears into the shed. Uh, She actually does she get shot or something? Yes, Uh, she gets shot when uh, uh, Ev and 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 Monster Dugan uh, try to make their move. And so they injure Bobby. And so Bobby has to go into the shed. Um, she eventually comes back out and all this other stuff happens. But in the meantime, the Tommy knockers are sending various Havenites to come help guard with digging things up. Uh, and he like runs through a couple of them and he has like really, uh, 
like pissy relations with all of them because none of them like him uh and he doesn't like any of them uh and he also is like starting to his resentment against the tommy knockers themselves is starting to grow he's worried about bobby uh in freeman moss who is the guy who gave him a ride into town way back at the beginning of the novel eventually he's the one who shows up and what's really great about this is that all of the same uh, tensions are still in play, uh, but they actually kind of like each other as people. <laughs> and and there's just these really great moments of them like um, trying to navigate that. Like, <laughs> it's like, well, you are part of the alien hive mind that I'm secretly working to destroy, but you're also kind of a chill dude. <laughs> And uh, he, he's like thinking this to himself, like they they have um, some points where they sort of argue or whatever. Uh, but at one point, then uh, guard kind of thinks to himself, like, well, Freeman Moss is actually pretty all right. And it's like one of the little stray thoughts that um, uh, the Tommy knockers can pick up on with their telepathy. And Freeman Moss just turns over, like turns to look at him and he's like, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, Freeman Moss is so rad. Like, oh, what a weird little dude. Um, and that doesn't, that's, that's like the Kingian thing, right? Like mm -hmm. other people wouldn't do that. I actually started reading last night. I'm not going to reveal who it is because I'm about to say a negative thing. Uh, but I started reading a novel last night that's very much in the Kingian mode. It's not Joe Hill. I, I, I wanted to spell, there's no matter if, if you ever say something like this, I have now learned. People mm -hmm. will immediately think you're talking about Joe Hill. I'm not talking about Joe Hill. I'm talking about a different author and a little bit of a different universe, but someone who is positioned quite often in a relationship to King, King blurbs their books, uh, that kind of thing. And I started reading a novel that's like a, it, it opens like a King novel. And what was so fascinating to me is it's all the beats of King. I read like 50 pages or something. All the beats of King, all the same ideas. This kind of like zooming in and out, this kind of like deep focus on character that, that then passes out of the novel, that kind of thing, right? Uh, but none of this kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. none of like the humanity of, you know, the most alien creature that's around. Right. And mm -hmm. it's a thing that sets him apart still as a stylist. And the book I was reading is from the past 10 years. Um, all right. So it is the attorney general. That's that's okay. the person uh, who does it. Um, the, his name is Tierney and he's the best attorney general that's ever been elected in Maine. We learn. Right. <laughs> he's on vacation in like Utah or something. Uh, and, uh, they, they need to get him right. Because like, Oh shit, like bad things are happening. So, uh, this is, I'm just going to read like the last few paragraphs of this little sections. It's in all these sections that are about like what's happening outside of Haven during the third, you know, the last bit the, during the wizard's quarter of the book is, uh, 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 it's called the scoop and like the scoop continued and all that kind of stuff. That's the chapter titles. Mm-hmm. At 1.37 p.m. Mountain Time, Tierney climbed into the shotgun seat of the cruiser and said, How fast does this go? Sir, this vehicle will go 130 miles an hour, and I am a Mormon, sir, and I am not afraid to drive at that speed, sir, because I am confident that I will avoid hell, sir. <laughs> what, a, what a fucking cool thing to write. Anyway, prove it, Tierney said. At 2.03 p.m. Mountain Time, Tierney was in a Learjet with no markings but the U.S. flag on its tail. It had been waiting for him in a small private airfield near Cottonwoods, the town of which Zane Gray wrote in Riders of the Purple Sage, the book which had been Roberta Anderson's favorite as a girl, the one which had perhaps set her course forever as a writer of westerns. The pilot was in a mufti. Are you Defense Department? Tierney asked. The pilot looked at him with expressionless dark glasses. Shop. It was the only word he spoke before, during, or after the flight. That was how the Dallas police entered the game. Mm-hmm. 
are you fucking kidding me? That's so like, good. Uh, it's so good. I just can't believe it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that makes me want to cry, just to be honest <laughs> with you, right? Like, just the, the effici- efficiency there, uh, the, like the way it kind of connects into everything else, the way that he pulls in like the very beginning of the novel here and all the fears and problems that, you know, that guard has about all this kind of stuff about where the Dallas PD are going to show up. Right. Like it's everything that you didn't want to have happen. Right. That's like tied up in the sweetness of, of Bobby Anderson and uh, fuck it. Right. Like here we are at the end and it's everything you didn't want to have happen. And the shop is here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, the, in the, the most nefarious form of of the <laughs> Dallas PD, right? Right. Um, and then, yeah, so we get these sections, too, that's like the FBI and the CIA both show up and they both want jurisdiction and they end up shooting each other, literally, mm-hmm. uh, because, like, that's what the Dallas PD does, right? They show up right. and they, they fuck it up because they can't help it because uh, they're, they're greedy and terrible and they're squabbling and they all have one goal, but not really. Hold on. Wait a minute. What am I talking about? Oh, <laughs> right. Are these, these Tommy knockers. Right. right. I, and that's on purpose. Right. But um, anyway, there's a forest fire and things are going bad and guard gets in that ship and uh, flies away. <laughs> well, first, though, we have like uh, the one glimpse of the divine. Right. Where there are. uh <laughs> There are evil uh, fire alarms whipping around the woods like little smoke detectors. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they've been uh, uh, remade into like these like uh, basically they're drones, right? Like the Tommy Knockers yeah. invent uh, targeted drones um, and they're just like uh, flying uh, smoke detectors zipping around uh, in the woods screaming and they're coming after guard. Uh, there's a woman in town, like one of the shed people who's been designated as the one who's like psychically controlling all of the perimeter uh, uh, defenses. Mm-hmm. Um, and guard, uh, one of these things is coming to him. Of course, he's like, he should be dead. Like at this point, he straight up should be dead. He's been shot. He's like bleeding profusely from his nose. He's overdosed on Valium, which he's taken with a bunch of booze. Uh, mm-hmm. It is like... Uh, you know, pure force of will guard is, is soldiering forth and this uh, thing is whipping at him and uh, he hears like Bobby's voice uh, give him the heads up and he turns around and he like just fires and he shoots the the thing, right? Like some sort of gunslinger. Yeah. Um, and uh, then Bobby, like in his head, like gives him a, a little like happy send off and he realizes like that's it's the real Bobby's voice, but he's unsure whether or not it's a thing that he hallucinated or if he somehow had like, you know, contact with her from from beyond. But it's like a, a little sliver of, um, you know, it, in this uh, vast dead universe filled with like evil ships. Right. And just like constant right. uh, technological implosion. It's this one little glimmer of uh, a countervailing force or or some other possible like um, uh, more than human uh, uh, presence. Yeah, the white. I mean, mm-hmm. what what eventually King will call the white. Right. Yeah, and then he gets in the ship and he uses the last of his strength to uh, fire it up uh, and blasts it off into the sky. Uh, all the Havenites hate this because it is literally like ripping their atmosphere away from them, the thing that they need to exist. Uh, and Guard dies of his wounds um, as the ship has already left Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and he dies with a smile on his face because his last thoughts are of uh, walking down the driveway to Bobby's farmhouse and seeing her and Peter there waiting for him. 
Yeah, it's uh, in bleak too, right? That mm-hmm. the Tommy Knocker problem is not solved. Right. It's just going somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like that that's yep. the thing that really hits me about the ending, right? Is like, well, the Tommy Knockers are not those people. The Tommy Knockers is like the thing that's produced by the ship atmosphere, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. there's no evil there is no howl in this machine, right, that's like making this happen. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an effect of this piece of material that runs into something. So, like, we've kicked the Tommyknocker can down the road, right? But the Tommyknocker problem is is still around. Right. And maybe it's, like, parallel happening in a bunch of different ships all around the universe all at one time. Um, and I think this is where the novel should have ended. Mm-hmm. Maybe with the epilogue. I, I'll accept the, I'll accept the uh, Havenite part of the epilogue, right? Mm-hmm. But I, 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 yeah, I don't like the hilly and, and uh, brown. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of silly. We get an epilogue. There's basically two parts to it. The first part is what happened to everyone in Haven. Uh, and what happened was the shop came, corralled all the surviving Havenites, uh, murdered a good deal of them. The ones who didn't die in some other way, right, through like active suicide or through some accident or explosion. Um uh, the shop found what uh, remaining Tommyknocker technology there was around and took it, which is not great <laughs> um, uh, in a general sense. Uh, and then the last like they, they keep the townspeople in a pen, like in the town square, right? The like 40 something yep. uh, Tommyknockers who uh, are, are still living. They like are just keeping them in a detention camp, like in the town yeah. square. Then they take and, them, which happens again in Dreamcatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they take them to uh, the shop headquarters in Virginia, and uh, they keep them there for study until every single one of them dies. Yeah, and we find out like uh, Firestarter is canonical here, right? Yeah, they're just like a child burned this down mm-hmm. <laughs> in Virginia a while back. Yep. Like, oh, interesting. Um, and uh, and also David Bright's whole thing too of like part of the reason he wants to. He, you know, he's hesitant to begin with, but uh, eventually goes for uh, calling the Stadies in and everything else as he remembers Johnny Smith and kind of not believing Johnny Smith a little bit. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he's the one who breaks that story in the Dead Zone. So I like those kind of little pieces here. And then, of course, these two children, the, the, the child shows back up and he ends up snuggled in bed with his brother Hilly in the mm-hmm. hospital. That's the final lines of the novel. Yep. That's hokum. Bullshit. <laughs> Get that out of here. Two uh, little boys but, reunited. There's your hope. Yeah, whatever. I mean, their parents are dead. That's no good. And right? their grandfather. They're yep. orphans. So maybe it's not everything <laughs> I uh, hated it to be. Let me see, let me read two little things here at the end. Um, okay. From our good friend, Michael Collins. Actually, I don't know Michael Collins. But, you know, Michael Collins wrote two books about Stephen King in the 80s. He's got one book that I have not read from yet called The Many Facets of Stephen King, and it, it comes out in 87, I think. So it's before the Tommyknockers is out. So it has a chapter that's called And Beyond that's just about, like, the other stuff that's coming out. So it's got uh, a chapter that's kind of like, what do we know about Misery? What do we know about the Tommyknockers? What do we know about the Eyes of the Dragon? Here's an important thing. Um, the terms of the agreement for these novels are notable in production history of novelistic production history, because this is Michael Collins. 
The terms of the agreement are unique. Although NAL receives paperback rights to Misery and the Tommyknockers, the contract specifies a 15-year expiration date for the hardcover rights going to Viking for Misery and to Putnam for the Tommyknockers. After that, hardcover rights revert to Stephen King. Huh. That's pretty notable. So yeah. Stephen King is so powerful at this point where he's like, I'm going to be around for long enough that I, you get, you know, a certain number of years of hardcover rights here, but it's the rights to these novels are coming back to me. That seems pretty big. Um, this is continuing. Taking in conjunction with a record-breaking press run for the Talisman, innovative pre-publication sales that reduce costs through B. Dalton's nationwide book chain, and at least three feature films and television productions based on King's work scheduled for the re release over the next months, the contract for Misery and the Tommyknockers indicates that King is indeed and will probably continue to be a publishing phenomenon. So, like... Everyone is noting here at the time, Stephen King as an entity at the end of the 80s is just unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, here's the thing about Tommyknockers specifically. Um, this is where I found out, by the way. So the name of the short story is The, Revela the Revelations of Becca Paulson. It came mm -hmm. out in Rolling Stone in August of 1984. Um, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, July 1984. Uh, it's an excerpt from the novel. Uh, and then he says, this is Collins. In, the, in that story, Becca Paulson runs afoul of a television set. She becomes so absorbed in it and its apparent revelations about her husband, her neighbors, and herself that it destroys her and her husband. So there you go. That's where I got that from. Oh, okay. Um, elsewhere, King has referred to a passage he has been working on for some time about a Coca-Cola vending machine that comes to life. From what he has <laughs> said about the Tommyknockers, that might also be an episode from the novel. <laughs> so this is Michael Collins making a cold shot to be like, I don't know. I've been reading about this Coke machine. I bet that's in the Tommyknockers. <laughs> um, here's another let me read another thing this is from the from Castle Rock the Stephen King newspaper this uh, the fanzine that we have purchased the issues from and that we've both read from because I want to talk about this here at the end of like the content discussion here even though we've gone very long but it's worth it you mm -hmm. know what I mean I don't yeah. know if I want to talk about it for four hours I did want to talk about the Tommyknockers for three um, uh, even though we did talk about it for four hours um, <laughs> uh, okay this is the beginning of Michael Collins, again, weirdly enough, writing the review of the Tommyknockers for Castle Rock. This is the beginning of it. For the past few months, one of the most talked about issues among King readers has been his retirement. Coupled with an, an announced demise of Castle Rock with the December 1988 issue, so this actual zine that, we're, that I'm reading from, it, it has a finite end date, basically a year from this issue, which is November 87. Uh, so uh, the few published statements about King's immediate and future plans have caused concern among his fans. Is it true? Will there, will there be no more novels from Stephen King? Stephanie Leonard's clarification in the September Castle Rock helps put the issue in perspective. Quote, Stephen King is not really retiring. He is hoping to cut back on work. There will not be any more five book years anytime soon. He does plan to continue writing and publish less. So there, I mean, so there is a uh, a sense right now in the Stephen King fandom that Stephen King is maybe going to be done, or mm -hmm. to take what what they, the fans keep referring to as the sabbatical, mm -hmm. um, and that's really important. Like that's that for a lot of readers who were invested in Stephen King at the time, five novels and then maybe nothing. I mean, that's literally the kind of apocalyptic mode that they're in. This is Collins again. Even though the novel does not represent King's swan song, even though there is the promise of more, including the unexpurgated version of The Stand, several short stories, and continued work on The Dark Tower, The Tommyknockers is nonetheless a terminal piece in a number of ways. 
Uh, in as early as 1986, King referred to the Tommyknockers as representing an ending of sorts in his career. In a letter accompanying a manuscript copy of It in 86, King noted that It was the last monster-oriented novel he was working on. Misery, he wrote, was not a monster novel at all. Its horrors were tied to the world around us, and therefore, for many readers, the novel was even more fundamentally frightening than anticipated when it appeared earlier this year. In the Tommyknockers, he added, any monsters had already been dead for millions of years, and their influence was residual. In addition, the letter discussed at length the resolution of one of King's most persistent themes, the threatened child. In it, children not only survive an immediate threat, but make the difficult transition from childhood to adulthood, from incipient sexuality to responsible sexuality. He would not, he said in the letter, have any more children in danger in upcoming novels. Oops. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oops, Steve. Also, you can hear Collins' interpretation of the the scene in it that we talked about in that episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But so he kind of continues on from that, but he says... Um, this is toward the end of the review. The Tommyknockers would be a perfect culminating novel if only because it is virtually a compendium of scenes, situations, characters, and illusions already familiar to his readers. Um, and then he talks about some of the other stuff we are about to talk about in the other thing. But just notable to me that, and the reason I'm reading from that is that Collins, who is like the most super fan or one of the most super fans you can get at the time, is basically saying, hey, this is... According to King, he's at the end of an era. According to us as fans, it seems like he's at the end of an era. We have no idea what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gets read in a really kind of apocalyptic mode. I think that's I think that's notable. Because mm-hmm. obviously Stephen King continued to write novels. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, another interesting thing from that Collings piece that you were just reading that I noted uh, from right. near the end is where he says that it's not a science fiction novel. Yeah. He works specific. This is Collings quote. He works specifically with elements of science fiction. He does not, however, concern himself with extrapolation from technology or with speculation and probability. Uh, not sure. I agree with your police work there. Other Michael, but uh, I, I think this is going to be a, a damning episode of Michael and Michael. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's very interesting that, uh, you know, Collings looks at it and he's like, well, it's not really about like future possibilities. So it's not really science fiction. And like it is a novel that is so concerned with like the potential applications of contemporary technologies. Wild stuff. Yeah. If you were, you know, like there are a lot of different definitions of science fiction, how it works. Right. One of them being uh, Darko Suvin's cognitive estrangement. That's like a big one that had a lot of weight, especially after the 70s. You could just teach that theory with this book. Right. And of course, like Jamesonian allegory. Right. That's another way that science fiction's understood, uh, you know, a big way that's understood. Like, sorry, bud, but uh, it's like the definition of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, by a couple different definitions. Uh, science fiction is not about the future, uh, although it sometimes is. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, anyway, it, yeah, Michael Collins is wrong. Curious about, I haven't looked up what Michael Collins is up to, but for, for being such a huge academic force in my in Stephen King in the 80s, I, it's kind of astonishing that if I hadn't done the show, I would have never known about him. But, yeah, same. Uh, what's your favorite Kingism? It's our little segment here, uh, Michael, where we talk about the things that we, you know, that are kingy about the book that we liked. What, what do you got? What do you think? Uh, so sort of in the middle part for me, um, when uh, everyone in town is basically already part of the hive mind, they're all Tommy knockers, they're all uh, undergoing kind of the, the becoming. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> there is a character named uh, Newt. Um, yes, uh, Newt Behringer, who's like on the town council or something. He's one of the town selectmen and he, he's one of the shed people 
um, along with Bobby and a few other folks. Uh, and this is the point in the novel where the physical changes of the becoming are uh, too too much to really ignore. And in particular, if you're a shed person, because they're like changing at a faster rate, um, their skin uh, is starting to lose color and become transparent. So they have to start putting on makeup. And so we get this really like striking scene of Newt standing in uh, his kit or in his bathroom. And he's pulled out his dead wife's makeup and his wife died like, you know, decades ago and he's been a bachelor and he had like all of her stuff is still around the house, right? There's, uh, it, it's so wonderfully kingy, this kind of uh, thing where it's like, it, it's like something out of a, a Sherwood Anderson story, right? The sad old man in the small town who kind of just like is going through the motions, uh, like continuing his life, but his 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 wife is gone. He lives alone. Her stuff is still there, kind of like gathering dust. And then he mm-hmm. pulls out her old outdated makeup and starts applying it to himself because he has to, because otherwise he can't go out and walk around because he looks too different right um and there's eventually like eventually one of the things that happens is he like has to go over to his friend's house where his wife is teaching them how to apply makeup because they're just these two old men who don't know how to apply makeup at all um but as he's like attempting it uh here this first time standing in the bathroom um he's sort of reflecting on how strange everything is uh and then um also like uh I think this is also the scene where we get the first indication that like their genitals are changing too, because like a tentacle falls out of his pajama pants or something. Uh, but there's all this reflection on it. And then how it culminates is um, <clears throat> he knew all right. The first changes Newt thought looking into the mirror on this hot Monday morning had in many ways been even worse, more shocking became uh, because they had been so well intimate. But he had gone a ways toward getting used to it, which only went to show, he supposed, that a person could get used to anything, given world enough and time. Yeah. Right? So just like these good main folk, right? Salt of the earth. And also like the slow ratchet of the Tommyknockers is just it's a thing. It turns out they think they can live with. I mean, they can. I guess for a bit. Uh, mine is kind of like in the middle of what we've been talking about. It's on 478, my like original hardcover that I got from the thrift store. And, uh, it's, it's the section in the middle of the guard, uh, Bobby talk where guards like, Hey, you're running this whole town on batteries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, why didn't you just tap into the power line? And she's like, they would have known. And he was like, you were literally running it on batteries. What are you talking about? They would have known you have like, no, you know, and you could figure that out, right? And basically, she's like, "We didn't think of that." Like the the Tommyknockers are so um, kind of insular in the way that they think about stuff and improvement. They just can't think about bigger systems. They don't understand how anything works. Um, and I just like that as like this kind of culminating kinky moment, right? Of like she's screeching and screaming, and it's Randall Flag, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's this kind of. Uh, <laughs> uh, Evil already undid itself right. 400 pages ago, and you didn't even know about it, right? I was going to say, what's great about it is that her defense is like, oh, but it's like we need a certain type of current, right? And only batteries <laughs> have that current. And then Guard is like, you can get a current converter at Radio Shack. Why didn't you build one? <laughs> right. And in some ways, it feels like King like uh, got this editorial thing, and he had to like write an explanation in here, or he realized it himself. 
Uh, but I don't care. Like, it, it feels to me like a really good um, shoring up of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, uh, what could be read as, like, an infrastructural weakness in the novel is, in fact, an infrastructural weakness in the Tommyknockers themselves. They're just, they don't think that way. They only think to improve. They only think to augment. They don't think to build, really, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a serious way. Um, power lines and building a railway implies longevity, they're not good at that. They are a short burst species mm-hmm. <laughs> in a bra- in a basic way, right? I like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's good. Uh, what in the Kingiverse is the segment where we go through and talk about all of the connections between what we just read and other Stephen King novels, uh, either uh, strange rhymings or explicit shared continuity shoutouts. Uh, in this book is uh just alive with this stuff this is probably the most networked kingiverse book uh that we've read thus far yeah i mean i think that this if you were you know just numerically to look at like what is the book that establishes the full kingiverse it's this one Mm -hmm. it's not one or two it's like constant and everywhere and it's all the books you know uh not just, you know, in the way that like the shot, there's like the shop series, right? Well, this is like, it's the shop series, but the shop is everywhere, right? Or Castle Rock, and it's like the Castle Rock series. Nope. That's accounted for too. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. So uh, just running through them here. Uh, yeah. Pretty early on, uh, Guard uh, mentions the word Ka as like a way of talking about fate or spirit or soul, uh, which is hmm. straight out of the Dark Tower books and is going to become central to the Dark Tower books. Um, shortly after yep. that, this is at the party, uh, I think where he's complaining about nuclear power plants. He mentions that there is a power plant or there's a nuclear facility in Maine called Arrowhead, um, which seems to me a reference to the mist because the Arrowhead project is the name for like what's going on, uh, on the lake there that ends up opening up the rift to the other dimension. Uh, so we get this sense of, uh, uh, you know, different, slightly different iterations of the same world, right? There's like another way in which, uh, uh, this Arrowhead facility wasn't what people thought it was and it did something worse, right? It did something worse than even Guard could have imagined. Right. Um, when Guard wakes up from his bender uh, at the beginning of the novel, he wakes up on Arcadia Beach in New Hampshire, which is the beach uh, where the talisman begins. He is like right down the road from the Alhambra Hotel where Jack Sawyer stays with his mom. Uh, the uh, like amusement park or whatever is up the other side of the beach. He notes that. And there is a like oh, a whip smart young man named Jack on the beach who has a conversation with Guard. You can do the rest yeah. with your imagination. <laughs> Yeah, of course he can. Mm-hmm. He even like talks about his mom. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, when Ev is in Derry at the hospital visiting uh, his grandson in the hospital, uh, he notes like there's a, a sort of, you know, passing line where he like tries to lay down and goes to sleep and he just hears water chuckling in the drains. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Um, mm-hmm. near the end of the novel when uh, the Tommyknockers have like bought up all of the batteries in like the immediate area. And so they have to send people out to get more batteries from further away. But as we said, the problem there is that as they get away from kind of the the new atmosphere, uh, they get sick and die. So uh, they get two of the like youngest kids who can still like do stuff on their own. And they're not even old enough to drive, right? They're like 13 and 14 years old or something absurd. 
and they like put them in a car and they send them to Derry to get uh, batteries and the kids don't do very well. As they're driving back, they start having a lot of health problems. The boy ends up dying eventually once they get back, um, but he becomes uh, feverish and hallucinatory, like having all these nosebleeds and stuff again um, as they're leaving. And the girl who is with him reports that he uh, hallucin- like he, he hallucinated uh, a clown looking up at him from out of a storm drain. Mm-hmm. Huh. With silver dollar eyes, yep. right? Like, <laughs> not ambiguous. Pennywise lives. Yep. Uh, John Smith uh, is already here. We've already talked about that. Uh, David Bright, who is the reporter who talks to John Smith uh, in the Dead Zone, is discussed multiple times by David Bright by other characters. His attempted assassin, or yeah, his attempted assassination of um, uh, what's his face is talked about. Uh, that's all there. Uh, the town where he lived initially, Cleves Mills, that is mentioned. So is Ludlow, which is the town where Pet Cemetery takes place. Um, uh, notably, Jerusalem's Lot is not mentioned. I guess because if it exists uh, in this setting, then it's already filled with vampires and like off the map. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think like what is interesting here is that the the connections that are being forged are... Uh, leaning more heavily on like the science fictiony elements. Um, there are multiple points where people talk about radio stations. Uh, guard receives like sort of radio signals on his uh, uh, the plate in his head, particularly when like Tommy Knocker stuff is going on. And one of the uh, stations that people are often listening to is Weezon in Bangor. Um, which is Stephen King's radio station. Also, Stephen King himself lives in Bangor. Like, the Ev Hillman uh, section mentions that there's, like, a guy up there who writes those horrible little books. So Stephen King is also in this novel implicitly. (laughs) Yep. Already. Stephen King's already here. Yep. (laughs) Stephen King was here the whole time. Uh, And to uh, more uh, in line with like the dead zone, which had this really weird reference to the Carrie film uh, guard when he is thinking about like busting through a door, thinks about the uh, scene from the Kubrick shining film uh, explicitly. Uh, there is a brief mention when the Dallas police arrive that uh, like sort of like where, where things are moving. Right. Um, uh, there is a brief mention of Arnett, Texas, which is uh, where Stu Redman is from in The Stand. And then, of course, the shop is throughout kind of the background of this novel. And at the end, we get the explicit confirmation that the shop headquarters in Virginia was once burned down by a child. So uh doesn't seem like Charlie's Rolling Stone story did a lot other than maybe make people know that the shop exists. <laughs> yeah, bleak, bleak stuff. Mm hmm. That's it. I I think probably I uh, I'm sure there's more that we missed. I mean, you know, just definitionally. So if you've got additional stuff you want to tell us about, mm-hmm. tell us on Twitter. Yeah. Send us an email. Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape. It's where we talk about all the music in the thing. There's a lot of music in this one. Mm-hmm. Let's get in there. The Rainmakers downstream. This is just some jangly ass rock music. Mm-hmm. Listened to by dads. Mm-hmm. Two and a half stars. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, Jeepster by T-Rex. This is also some like jangly ass rock music listened to by dads, but I think British rather than American. Two stars. Mm. Uh, Dr. Hook, Baby Makes Her Blue Jeans Talk. More jangly ass rock music listened to by dads, but also it's Dr. Hook, who, who I got a soft spot for. So uh, three stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny when I see this and it's like, yeah, this is like, this is music that like my mom listens to. 
Yeah. Like that's yes. how I know about Dr. Hook. Um, uh, next one, Neil Diamond, thank the Lord for the nighttime. Uh, this is pretty good. Three stars. Wild Cherries play that funky music. Five stars. <laughs> like, I wish this were in every novel. <laughs> so I had an opportunity to let's do it. The song is rad. Uh, it's so good. Uh, anyway. Next one is Bob Dylan blowing in the wind. Uh, one half star, more like blow it out your butt. Whoa, blow your butt, Bob Dylan. Ah, uh, the Rainmaker's drinking on the job. I listened to this song and downstream, and I if you just started playing them, I would think they were the same. <laughs> Obviously, they're different technically, but uh, they're kind of the same vibe. So, uh, two and a half stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. It came out of the sky. Uh, this is like as far as Creedence songs go. This one is really boring, um, but it sounds like a Creedence song. So, like maybe two and a half stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a, a like a traditional choir hymn called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I'm going to say uh, in a okay. one cannot rate a, a choir hymn. Mm-hmm. IMO. Um, so it doesn't. Uh, no, I, I refuse. I refuse to do so. Oh, OK, well, uh, the next choir hymn is This is My Father's World. Uh, two stars. <laughs> uh, well, I've also got another one. When we meet at Jesus feet. In A, I refuse to rate it. <laughs> uh, the next choir hymn is Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. This gets three stars, if only because you uh, sing it to the uh, melody of the Ode to Joy. Um, by the way, these are all showing up because the other uh, thematic thing that King activates here is uh, positioning the Tommyknockers and kind of like the zeal that the Tommyknockers feel about their project uh, as a continuation of um, the big shit show of uh, uh, revivalism that happened that got the town's name changed initially, right? There's something about the history of the town and it first, re- like, you know, first is first as religious revivalism, second as uh, alien invasion. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like uh, they all go to Ruth McCallson's McCallson's funeral. Right. And like it's hollow. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the whatever faith that the town had at some point is just Tommy Knocker stuff now. Right. Right. That that uh, religion goes out the window immediately. It's replaced seamlessly. And again, this is being written in the 80s during the, the a whole uh, evangelical revival that's occurring there. And I it would be a mistake to to not you know, link those things up, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York, five stars. Does Frank Sinatra have a bad song? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. You, you ever listen to Sinatra Live at the Sands where he does like 14 minutes of stand-up in the middle of it? No, I haven't. You, you should listen he to could, it. It's wild. He could do that. Like, I don't know. He did. <laughs> like, so it's like four songs or whatever. He like does some songs and then he does a full 10-minute set. It's just jokes. Like, it's just like whatever, you know, some of them haven't aged all that well, but it's astonishing. And then he's back to songs. Wow. It's weird. Yeah, it's great. You should check. It's not for Live at the Sands, one of the great all-time albums. Mm-hmm. Five stars. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, America, two stars. I like Simon and Garfunkel, but not this song. Uh, I got to listen to this one. All right. Hold on one second. Wait, are you listening to the Simon so and Garfunkel or the? No, 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 no. Oh. I forgot to listen to this. <laughs> he like had to drop everything. You're like, wait a minute. Paul Simon, terrible by himself, but and Garfunkel? Mm-hmm. Uh, I got Jim Lowe's Green Door. 
Uh, two stars. This sounds like bad music for boring people. Bazoom! Take that. <laughs> no, it's like it's got some like sing-songy vibes to it. This is like whatever like music is. This is not what I not what I like in music world. Mm-hmm. No thanks. Um, Casey and the Sunshine Band. That's the way I like it. Uh, five stars. Uh, the Who won't get fooled again. Five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, they did, they did get fooled again. The Tommyknockers <laughs> got them. Oh no! The 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 protest generation, they got fooled again. They did. But damn. Uh, look, people people like to ask, "Hey, if you don't like Bob Dylan, that's their voice. Hey, if you don't like Bob Dylan, what do you like?" And to which I always say, "Good music." Mm-hmm. But won't get fooled again as a song is better than the the, the entirety of Bob Dylan's <laughs> discography put together. <sighs> Uh, no question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, other things that are better than the entire Bob Dylan discography put together are CCR's Run Through the Jungle, which I give five stars. Oh, man. What a good song. Is this the second time this has come up, too? Uh, yes. Yes, it Did has. Did we get Run Through the Jungle in some previous novel recently? I don't mm-hmm. remember. Yep. It's a repeat. I'm pretty sure. Uh, Buffalo Springfield, for what it's worth, three stars. That is a good song. I, I wouldn't say it's the best Buffalo Springfield song, hmm. but good song. Uh, Frank Sinatra, that old black magic. I give this three stars because I I agree with you. I think Sinatra has a lot of great songs. I like listening to this song, but it's not like it's not giving me like the 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 real sweep of the experience that I want out of a Sinatra song. Right. It's not a summer wind or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You need I, that's why Live at the Sands is so good. Just as my promo again for Live at the Sands. is It's kind of like a greatest hits album mm-hmm. and it's a live show. It's a recorded live show, obviously, Live at the Sands. So. So worth checking out. But yeah, this is not, I, I agree with your evaluation there. Phil Collins in the air tonight, five stars. It's wild that this shows up in this novel, but it is contemporary, I guess. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Five stars. It's a great song. Yeah. Uh, Rolling Stones, Undercover of the Night. Uh, one star. This sounds like a Talking Heads ripoff. It sounds like they're them trying to do uh, Life During Wartime. Oh, that's funny. I've never listened to this, and uh, I'm not going to, but that's I didn't think, you know, because the Rolling Stones invent, reinvent themselves a lot of times. I, I guess they had to do that with Talking Heads, too. Mm-hmm. I got Queen, Hammer to Fall, three stars. I'm not like a big Queen fan, and this is not like a top-tier Queen song, so mm-hmm. three stars. Easy. Cool. Uh, well, I guess that, that kind of brings us to the end. One other piece of bonus trivia that I want to drop on you all. Um, actually a couple of a couple, not really bonus trivia like uh, just some other ob- observations about this book one uh, there's a weird grab bag of literary references here there's an explicit reference to Floating Dragon by Peter Straub which we've talked about on this show before which I've said is like this it's almost like a parody of Stephen King novels like sort of before the letter Um, it's a, a really interesting uh, there's also an extended rumination on the Deptford trilogy um, I didn't write down the name of the, the author, but I would know it if I didn't have to think of it right now. Anyway, it's like a series of like Canadian novels that are, that apparently Stephen King read and really liked, um, because he talks about them and like summarizes them pretty extensively here. Uh, Robertson and, Davies. Yes. Robertson Davies. That was, it. it was a good, good Canadian name where you can, uh, uh, sense Scotland in the background there. Uh, then, uh, just, a. I, I don't even know if this was an intentional reference or kind of an unconscious thing, uh, but when we learn about the history of Haven, uh, we learn that the first sort of settlement uh, there by uh, uh, 
you know, English colonial people, uh, was a plantation uh, founded by a guy named Hugh Crane, uh, who is also, that is also the name of the man who built Hill House in Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And I hmm. only think it's not an accident because King is so obvious in his affection for Jackson and in that book that it seems like he would just take that name as a little nod. Right, of course. Um, fun thing here, you've also written here, David Bright was King's editor? <laughs> uh, yeah, David Bright, this is, I think, according to Collings as well, David Bright was King's editor at the campus newspaper when he was writing his uh, uh, King's Garbage Truck column or whatever. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, what What is this hissing thing, too? Oh, uh, so there's a bit in... Um, uh, Collings again points this out. There's a moment where I think uh, Bobby says something to guard and she said she says it meanly. Right. So it's like whatever she said, she hissed. And then guards or like the narration, which is kind of like doing, uh, you know, free and direct discourse with guards thoughts is uh, it, it pivots on the hissed word or the word hissed. And it says, even though the thing she said had no uh, uh, sibilance, right, it had no S sounds in it. Um, she hissed it nonetheless. Apparently, this is a King has told this story that he was told by a reader at one point um, that he couldn't use the verb hissed when there weren't S's in, in the thing because he'd done it and someone like nitpicked him on it. And then his response was to do it again and then be like, even though there weren't any S's in it, she hissed it nonetheless. Michael Stephen King Lutz. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you would absolutely do that. <laughs> this is the kind of thing you would tell me about doing on purpose. <laughs> okay, oh, I guess I'll, I'll own that. I was thinking like, oh, this is Stephen King taking reader commands. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's the, the resonance. But no, I think, don't you think you would do that? Don't you think that's your temperament? <clears throat> oh, yes. No, absolutely. <laughs> like, that is probably, <laughs> you You did get me. I wouldn't have put myself there, but you having said it, like, yes, I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey. Stephen King didn't write a book, or he did not publish a book in 1998. Yeah, he, he uh, took a year off to celebrate my birth. That was it. And also probably getting sober. Oh, uh, I guess. Part yeah. of the process, I guess. Pro I don't know. It could have been both. Uh, but he, uh, 1989, he publishes a book called The Dark Half, and that's the next book we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can hear all about that next month and uh, probably learn whatever we're going to do for a bonus episode then because we'll, we'll have options. Yeah. Uh, well, The Dark Half is the option, right? Well, there's uh, the film. And there's also an adventure game. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll think about that. We could do. We could do. I, I've purchased the film, but uh, I could. I could play the adventure game. Yeah, that could be interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, the uh, yeah. Uh, you know what? I have a very negative impression of this book. If you were to ask me, like, what was my least favorite King book in a general sense? Uh, I didn't. You know, not really thinking about it off the dome. I dark half would be like at the very bottom. I don't know if really? it'd be the worst, but hmm. I really don't like that. This book I only read it one time though, so I'm very curious. Especially given the Tommy Knockers, you know what happened here. Very curious about the dark half. Yeah, I remember my memory of it is uh, just kind of middle of the road. It felt kind of paint by numbers. Like it's an it's an evil it's an evil alter ego novel, right? And right. it right. it does that thing. So. <laughs> mm. All right, we'll figure it out. 
Okay, well, we'll be back in a month to talk about that. Thanks so much for listening. And, uh, Michael, who do we do this for? Oh, well, maybe we do it for those delicious D-cell batteries. Nah, we do it for Steve. Yeah, okay. (laughs) 